G'day everybody and welcome to the latest episode of Let's Do Another Take. Oh, they're beautiful. They are beautiful. I love the fact that you make them dance. Oh, well, how can you not? In today's episode, I was so excited to talk to this man. This is Dr. Alex Kaufman, and Alex is a neurosurgeon, so he operates on people's brains. On top of that, some would say, ironically, he's a drummer. And uh, we spoke about just so many amazing things. I, I asked him what happens to the brain when he's playing the drums. Uh, I asked him what it's like to cut someone's skull off and look at their brain while he's having a conversation with them. And um, it, it just blew my mind, this conversation. He's just a lovely, lovely bloke. And uh, I mean, obviously a genius. So sit back and relax and prepare to be blown away by the amazing Dr. Alex Kaufman. My friend, what was the first album or single that you ever owned? Oh, you know, I do know the answer to that. It was Dave Matthews' band, Crash. Nice. Um, and the way that came about was, it was marketing, but God, it was good. I was, when I was a kid, I'd have those Zildjian magazines, and they'd have, like, every symbol in the magazine that you could ever possibly just drool over these incredibly beautiful <laughs> artistic hammering of metal and look at it and go, wow. And, yeah, you know, you'd almost try to create the sound of the symbol in my head looking at it but there was an wow. artist preview and then down on the bottom i remember it was down the bottom right hand corner it was i even remember the caption it was like almost you know 35 years ago it's like hey do man one of the most popular drummers to come along in, all, in a long time carter Beaufort of the dave matthews band i don't know what i just i sort of just looked at that and thought you know what <laughs> i'm gonna check him out and I, wow. uh, and then it was obviously back in the days of CDs. So I ordered the CD and it arrived in the anticipation. Like it was the first CD I'd actually bought. Wow. And uh, the Crash album opens with acoustic guitar. <laughs> so I was ready for this amazing drum solo to start this song. And then it's like, do, 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 do. It's like, oh, it's a major, this is a major disappointment. It's like, where's the drums? And then the drums came in this really simple beat. And I was like, oh, this is not so great. What have I done? I just wasted my money. And then as the album went through and I got to appreciate what Carter was actually doing. What he was bringing to it, yeah. Oh, my goodness. It was just... And it's, I reckon Crash is still one of my favourite albums of all nice. time. Yeah. And so you were, you were drum obsessed before you got your first album? Oh, I was drum obsessed from four. Um, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I, and I would have had a drum kit at four if I hadn't been mean to my sister. Dad's like, you're not having a drum kit to you're nice to your sister. <laughs> That's the excuse. I think it was because he probably couldn't afford it. But I got it when I was seven. And that was wow. like, that was the greatest moment of my life for waking up. Because my birthday's the 24th of December, right? Day before right. Christmas. So I woke wow. up on the 24th and I pulled back the curtains. And then mum and dad have bought this drum kit and they've set it up just behind the curtain in my bedroom. And that is a memory that I'll never forget. I can still see. If I close my eyes now, I can still see that image and that and, and remember that feeling. Wow. And I was like, I've got it. You know, just one of those dream things you get. Like yeah, since yeah. I was four to seven, I dreamt about having a drum kit. I watched this guy 
um, at a church that we used to go to, and I used to just watch, and it was just mystical and just magical, and all of a sudden I had mm. it. And it was, uh, wow. yeah, no, I was drum obsessed from the beginning. It was probably the best day of your sister's life as well, by the sounds of things. <laughs> That's right. She's had good behaviour. <laughs> or did that mean that from that moment on you could go back to being a dick to your sister again? That's right. Once I had the drug kit, there was nothing to lose. <laughs> <laughs> nothing holding you back. That's right, yeah. What kind of, what kind of kit was it? It was a pearl and uh, it was oh, one wow. of those, uh, uh, it was pearly white. You know, I don't know, what, don't know what it's called, but it's the white where it's, it's not a, uh, a plain white. It's, it's sort of like that crystal white or not even the crystal. It's the bits of white are all chopped up. It's, um, there's a Is name it like for a perloid, perloid finish? That's probably, that's probably the right way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah, nice. It's beautiful. But it was a hybrid. I mean, like, it wasn't the pure kit. I mean, the person mum and dad bought it off, they'd sort of, you know, it was a bit like an aftermarket. <laughs> there was a right. bit of this and a bit of that. But uh, most of it was pearl and most of it was in that beautiful pearl white i think you probably that they probably did you a real favor getting you a good quality secondhand kit rather than a cheap new one i think you're spot on actually mm. i think you are spot on yeah it was because the the real cheap kits are just crap and you can't they can never sound good no and also as a kid it, it was burned into my brain what a what a good kit looked and sounded like because I'd watched this mm. guy play and the, everything from the rim shot to what the cymbal looked and sounded like and the tom, particularly mm. the tom, sounded like. So it would have been nothing but disappointment. Like even at seven, I was acutely aware of what it meant to look like, sound like, mm. feel like. So I think you're right. Mm. Yeah. So That's it was unreal. beautiful. Beautiful. I used to work at, a, I, I used to work at Taramara Music Centre in Sydney and, uh, and some parents brought their their son in and they said now he wants to get a guitar it's his first guitar um and i i said to him okay what kind of guitar do you want and they answered on his behalf and they said he wants a red one can you tell him that that color isn't important and i said to them no i can't because if he wants a red guitar the most important thing that you have to be aware of is you've got to buy a red guitar. If that's yeah. what he's dream dreamt about, make sure it's red for God's sake. <laughs> it's uh, it's so true. It's it's such an important part of the psyche of of, of getting an instrument, isn't it? It's it's, it's mm. if it's not what it's meant to be, it's it kind of ruins the whole thing. But it's uh, mm. you know, I wanted my symbol to look like the guy that I watched play and it was really shiny. So I used to get the Brasso and polish my symbol with Brasso wow. until it was wow. just, you know, just, it was like a mirror finish. Yeah. yeah. Nice. But, uh, and they, so, so you were seven when you got this kit. Um, what, what happened initially? Did you, did, because you, you strike me as someone who kind of plunges into anything that you, you, you take on did you were you obsessed with drums and practice obsessed even mm. to the point where i used to again watching this guy set up his kit and pack it up i used to spend hours setting it up and then taking it down and packing it up and then just setting it up again and just packing it because <laughs> wow. that was all part of the of the magic of it uh but my dad was a pianist and he was studying to be a concert pianist but never got there so he would play the right. piano at home and I would play the drums at home. And we lived in a place called Ooze, 
well, actually Osterley, which had about a population of five. It's in the middle of Tassie, like there's literally nobody there. So I had no, I had no bandmates. I had no bandmates, so... (laughs) Can you hear the Renaults in the background? Sorry about that. It's going to look amazing. Um, (laughs) So Dad used to play the piano, and he used to play a lot of gospel stuff and a lot of classical, and I used to play along with him. And that was good and and bad. Like, it would have been great to have played in a band at that early stage and just got used to playing with different people, getting better, you know, better at keeping time and just listening to other people. Um, but the good thing about playing with Dad was melody. So a lot of the gospel mm. stuff and the and the classical stuff was about melody, and so I really tuned mm. into that. And even now, a lot of the stuff I listen to when I when I play the drums to something, I'm I'm not even listening to the bass guitar. I'm really, just listening to the melody of the whole whole thing, and that really dictates what I try to play. And I'm really sort of melody focused. Yeah, I mean I will tap incessantly to you know that rhythm that's in my head. But, mm. but melody is the thing that really gets me about any any tune that I listen to. I think that comes from playing with Dad. Yeah, that's that's unreal. I, I have a thing for song drummers, and it sounds like that's what you're describing, and that a, a song drummer doesn't think, you know, what what standard, you know, drum beat can I play? They listen to the song and they play the song, and, and you know, a big part of that is accentuating the melody, obviously. Yeah, I uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, Carter's a great example of that. I mean, he he's a busy drummer. He plays a lot of stuff, mm. but one thing he's not guilty of is going you know above and beyond. It's just so musical. I mean, all his accents mm. really follow the, the the melody of the song. Mm. Um, I listen to like my, my partner listens to a lot of country, and I love how the country drummers are really good at that. You know, country's yeah. a very sort of melodic sort of genre. And there's yeah. no big sort of drum solos and stuff. It's just, it's, it's, it's a rhythm that just follows that beautiful sort of harmony and melody all the way mm. through. I'm just always attracted to that. Did, did you ever have a period of your life where you were too busy to play? Yeah. Yeah, and it still pains me to Most think about it. Most of your it. life? <laughs> no, yeah. actually, not really. I mean, there was a gap when I, in primary school where I stopped playing and I regret that because that's a really critical part for your development and I really wish mm. that in primary school and secondary school I was playing in bands a lot um, and mm. I think that really affected me but then in at uni was the some of the best days of my life we were in a band then and we did we did okay but it was it was just a fabulous experience of you know re- rehearsing multiple times a week you know playing the gigs on the weekend and it was just brilliant. I mean, that's the ultimate team sport. If it goes well, you're in it together. If it goes badly, yeah. you're in it together. The stories are fantastic. The fights are even better. And yeah. you just you learn a lot about yourself and you learn a lot about dealing with other people and you learn about playing music and, and even, you know, yeah. and, and you know, playing to a crowd. And it's it's just I mean, those six years of going through med school and playing my band, I look back on those very, very fondly. That's unreal. Mm. So nowadays, um, does your schedule allow you do you have the kind of schedule where you have to have multiple days off in a row to to kind of recharge the batteries or do you does your do you say schedule or schedule <laughs> it's such good i say schedule but i hear okay, everybody good. everybody says schedule and i like is, is schedule the right thing to say or is it schedule? Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you, yeah, you I, know, I have to me. think about it every time and <laughs> I, sec, I second guess myself. 
does your does your schedule allow you to play drums more now say than when you were first starting out yeah definitely when, when i finished med school and got on the neurosurgery training program i did a national tour so i was in a different city each year mm. so taking a drum kit was just not viable so mm. i had to sell it in, in the first year and that really hurt and for the entire mm. six years of training it was all about i'm going to buy a drum kit when i'm done i want to get back into it straight away mm. And then when I moved to Brisbane, I was working in private and public, and that was very time-consuming. And I made a decision, Michael. I actually made a decision. I said, right, I'm going to take some time back for myself. It's, you know, I'm going to claim back my mornings. And I retired nice. from the public sector and just worked in private purely so that I could have the mornings back to myself to do something for me. Mm. It was a tough mm. decision because nothing's ever perfectly good or perfectly bad. You know, each decision you make has got a good part to it and a bad part to it. Yeah, and the public yeah. sector's got a lot of positive stuff, but the negative was that it took up all my time and the after hours on call and the nighttime on call. Uh, that mm. was that was the price I paid. So I got my mornings mm. back, got my drum kit back, started playing, um, and we were even about to record something when COVID hit. And COVID hit, and now I've had three years of again nothing, mm. <laughs> and my mm. heart is bleeding. <laughs> yeah. So when are you getting back into it? That's a great question. I think if you ask me tomorrow, tomorrow. if you ask my uh, partner, it's when you find a garage that's soundproofed. <laughs> <laughs> even had an electric yes. kit, a really nice electric kit, but even like, yeah, it's going through the headphones. <coughs> sounds amazing, but even the sound of the stick on a, on a, on a, on a pad. It's and it loud. Was, uh, it's still loud, yeah. The next yeah. door neighbours are like, you know, still have the same, I might as well be playing, you know, on some big old, you know, broadcaster booming and stuff. It's, to them, it's yeah. the same thing. Same amount. Have of you noise. ever tried the the ones with the mesh heads? That's what I had. Yeah, a Roland. Oh, and and they were still loud. Yeah. Well, I didn't think it was loud, but you know, the neighbours thought it was loud because there's, there's just that that relentless tap 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 just driving crazy. They don't understand, Michael, do they? They just don't get it. Like they can't, no, they don't. They can't hear what's going. Through. It sounds. It sounds world class in my headphones. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. I I had a neighbour at my old studio in Annandale that I had to move out of sadly at the beginning of last year, and the guy above um, had a kitchen renovation business, and he was the most horrible human being I've ever encountered in my life, and he complained about music and I, I did everything in my power to not bother him and he he said to me there's there's not going to be a fucking recording studio downstairs mate and I said well there mate there is I'm I'm doing everything in my power to you know minimize the impact on you and I said what if you got like a a blacksmith or something who was banging or, or someone using pneumatic drills or something and he, he said these exact words to me he said Mate, drills are fine. It's just music, mate. It makes you want to rip your own face off. <laughs> mate, you, you that, just, you're never going to win against what, that. That is exactly what the guy said. So there's something actually about the constant beat of music that can actually drive people a bit more crazy than random kind of obnoxious sounds. Yeah, I wonder if it's because music is very, like, it's very personal. You listen to something, it's it's really about you doing something for yourself and it means something mm. to you. So there's, mm. there's some vulnerability to it. So when you hear somebody else playing music, it's, it's possible that 
you know, it's a bit like, you know, someone on the road who's, who's not really thoughtful on the road. They're just thinking about themselves and you become mm. enraged because you see someone else who's sort of oblivious or doing something for themselves. And if, perhaps mm. when, when somebody else is playing music loud, you feel like, well, that should be about them, but they shouldn't be putting it on everybody else. You know, music is a personal yeah. thing. And yeah. I, I feel like it's, 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 it's very related to, to road rage in a way. Yeah, yeah, indeed. <laughs> it, it certainly reminded me of it with this neighbor I had, let me tell you. Um, is, is, you were talking about getting your, your mornings back. Is burnout a real problem for surgeons? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a problem. Burnout is a big problem. How many people uh, get into surgery only to just go, you know, spend it? Because I think from, from what I've uh, read and, and listened to podcasts of you before, it was 16 years of training. How many people would go through that kind of amount of training and then get to the other end and go, actually, nah, this isn't for me and, and quit? Oh, do you know what? There is a few people that go through 16 years and then at the very end of the final post say, yep, I've had enough. There's only a handful wow. though. And mm. that's, I think, the trap for most of them because they get to that point and they've spent so much time doing something that they know they can't do anything else. So mm. their, their, skill, their skills are all about really one thing. Uh, none of these people can do anything else. And mm. you think, you know, you're hardy, your heart, so I've, I've spent all this time pursuing one goal it'd be stupid to give up now like 16 years mm. and now i'm going to go and be a you know a florist or or go and pursue some you know music career or something it's very mm. hard to justify that so there's a lot of mm. surgeons who go through that who are have a low level of satisfaction in their work but they know that they're not going to pivot like mm. it's, it's far mm. too expensive to pivot um, mm. and so which is kind of sad yeah, it is. It is. The problem is, like, we don't know what surgery looks like until we get out the other end. That's the, that's that's part of it. Like, and you don't know if you're good at it until you get out the other end. It's very different from musical mm. sport. Like, if you know yeah. Cristiano Ronaldo could kick a football right from the get go. So, you know, whereas mm. you know, Doctor X who wants to be a neurosurgeon, how do they know they're going to have the aptitude for neurosurgery until they go through the rigors mm. of getting into the program and testing themselves out? You know. You weren't cutting people's skulls off as a kid for, for practice. No, no, or animals or nothing, nothing like that. Uh, I just well, knew that good. I... We, I can, just we was... can rule out psychopath, can we? <laughs> well, I'll, yes, for that, but I still maybe, I might be, might be a psychopath in other areas. Um, but th that's a real problem. I mean, there are, the, the burnout is, is a big issue. The burnout's a different issue. The burnout is from the golden handcuffs. So surgeons are very good at borrowing from their future self three, four, five times over. Like they just do it. Right. It's just part of the personality. So right. once they've done that, they've then got to work and work and work and work to pay that all off, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a right. great example of a guy at work. He's got a countdown. He's literally in a book. It's a, it's a physical book and he's got numbers and it's a countdown. And we're mm. like, well, what's this, what's this for? And he goes, that's how many operations I need to do to pay off my house. <laughs> wow. But... Like why didn't you buy are a smaller house? <laughs> are we talking like hundreds of operations? Yeah, probably. Wow, mate, we're, we're wow. good at we're good at spending money. It's a it's a it's a real problem. Um, well, I mean, I, I I would vouch to say 
that luckily enough you probably have a reasonable hourly rate so it probably makes spending money a little easier for you than someone like me um i'd like to concentrate on the uh the the satisfaction contentment uh whatever the whatever the, what an alternative metric would be like i know some mm. very wealthy people and um I know enough wealthy people to know that that metric alone means nothing. Yeah, um, totally, totally. So it does uh, mean you can spend more. Is my point? Yes, but that in yeah. itself doesn't really mean anything at all. No, I mean, I put this for example, right? You, you, you got to play in a like a version with Denzel, right? And you were having the time mm. of your life. Mm. Uh, there are not many times in my life where I wouldn't give a left arm to be in that situation. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. Like yeah. that's a life experience. That was that would have just been that is fabulous. Yeah. I would have to be Look extremely at... wealthy to feel like I'd compensated for not being able to do that. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose that's why I said before that it's a bit sad that uh you know, people feel like they've invested too much time to to kind of pivot because I know musicians that have spent 10 years, 20 years on their craft that get to a point where they go, you know what, this is all too hard. And then they'll just change careers. And, and that's I think interesting. Even though it makes me sad that the music industry does chew people up and spit them out, I think there's a real beauty to people who acknowledge that they're not happy and just say, no, I'm going to walk away and try and find something that makes me happy. Wow. Yeah. That's a real eye opener for me. That's a real eye so opener. So is, is your assumption that anyone that's making money professionally from music is just got it made? Is you that know the eye opening part of it? I, yes. Um, I, yes, I think I, I had a sort of a romanticized view of that. Mm. Uh, is mm. it because what they're good at and what they enjoy, so the creative side of it meets the commerce side of it and the two of them don't go well together? Or do uh, they just yes. they just want to make a living That's and be comfortable? Uh, look, every as with every other facet of life, everyone's different. I'm very, very lucky that money isn't what motivates me. Um, and so therefore, if I don't have a lot of money, I'm still as happy as a pig in shit because I get to make music and, and that's a real joy for others. You know, they, they want financial security, you know, and that's completely fair enough. But the other aspect to it is the, when you pour your heart and soul into writing music and producing it and you spend hundreds of hours making a record and you're super proud of it and then you go to share it with your friends and you know you get very little back and you feel like you've created something that was special and it it's met with general indifference from the universe that's a real crushing weight for for me and for many musicians. So I, I think it's not just about the, the, the art and commerce not gelling. It's also the, 
the vulnerability from releasing your art and and not having your expectations met as well. Yeah, right. So it's really, um, is it like a broken heart where you make yourself vulnerable yeah. and yeah. then you are cast aside or, yeah. you know, you remain unloved or something? Yeah. Well, okay. very, that's a, I, I'd never equated it to a broken heart, but I think that's a really, really interesting way of looking at it. Um, a lot of musos will complain about their lot in life. Uh, and a lot will uh, just constantly be amazed by how lucky they are. But uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a tough road. It's a, it's a roller coaster ride. Um, and for every, you know, being in the Triple J studios with Denzel Curry doing that amazing like a version, there are, there are a thousand for every one of those times where I go, man, I put so much into this and I feel like no one cares. So it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's an emotional roller coaster. Yeah. That's a real eye-opener. So the question I want to know is, why do you do it in the first place? Is it, you must have loved it in the first place. Same reason you, same reason you play drums. Yeah. You, you, I can only answer really personally, but I became so obsessed with Elton John when I was about 16, 17. And that was the catalyst for me. I discovered Elton John and I went, I want to do that. And I just didn't stop. I, I didn't have any piano lessons. I taught myself to play Elton John music. And it was an imperative. Um, probably in the same way that from the age of four, you know, you were, you were tapping beats. And uh, I think people do it because it's an incredible passion. Um, and it's incredibly beautiful, as you know, to, to make music and to make music with other people that where the sum of the parts is greater than the, yeah. uh, the whole. That is so or the true. The whole is the greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah, the yeah. whole is greater than the sum of the parts. That is, that is a very unique feeling in a band room, isn't it? When it you is. just transcend to a different level and it's like the power is coming from somewhere else and the communication is innate. And Absolutely. <laughs> I, that, so <laughs> I have, I, we, we, joked last night that this might be a 24-hour podcast. Um, I have so many questions. Here am I drumming on the, on the table. Um, okay. God, where do, I, where do I start? What happens to you when you play the drums on an emotional and a brain level? There was, I think, personally, what happens to me when I play the drums on both those levels, there is definitely two. One is I love the, um, the, the motor side of it. So the, the coordination side of it. So I, mm. I used to love practicing, you know, having an ostinato on, on one side and, and then practicing something on the other side of my body. That was, for me was just fascinating and it was just brilliant. A classic right. example was Virgil Donati where he plays a paradiddle with his left hand and left foot just playing a paradiddle. Then he plays a double paradiddle with his right. So he's got four against six. 
And I spent it's months insane. trying to, to learn that, and I and I got it. But I, you know, and then he and then he swaps it around, which I haven't. Seen <laughs> <get that. laughs> uh, yeah. But that that motor thing for me was just fabulous. The, the, the coordination uh, and the control uh, was just mm. real fascinating science. But then there's the other side of it, the personal side where it's rooted deeply rooted in that childhood romanticism that I had. The you know, watching that guy play the drums and there was there's just some sort of brain chemistry where it's 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 like a first love it's like you just never let it go it's it's just always there and Mm. um and so it always feels like home and it was reinforced throughout my whole life whenever something was tough or something bad had happened i would jump on my drum kit because the drum kit never made me feel bad it always felt like the harbor during the war Mm. type thing Mm. um and then a lot of times i would play I would have a melody going through my head. So I'd be playing and I'd have some sort of, you know, soaring chorus melody going through my head and and it would just take me to another world, you know. It's just mm. Do you do you get a do you get a real emotional response when you play ever? It just feels good. Um like, do I get an emotional response? I guess I do. It's, um, it just feels right. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It just, yeah, yeah. Being, like walking on a drum kit on a stage and sitting down just feels right. That feels like the way the world should be. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice. Like, What's the uh, biggest crowd you've ever played to? Uh, 2,000. But there is a caveat to that. So I was 12 and there was a band playing in Hobart at the Hobart City Hall. And it was Mm -hmm. full. I think it's about 2,000 or 1,800 people. And somehow my dad convinced the drummer to let me jump on the drum kit and play. Like that would never happen today. And I I can't Mm -hmm. remember who the band was. But I knew their song. I knew one of their songs and dad and I had played it. And somehow I convinced and I got the drummer said yes. So this place was full. And at 12 I jumped on this drum kit. And wow. they count in, off we go, and I'm playing this song. And then I get halfway through the song, and I realize they're actually playing a different song. <laughs> but luckily, what I was playing worked anyway. And then the next song was the one that we thought we were going to be playing. So I got to play two songs. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't nervous. It just felt right. It just felt, and I didn't mm. even think about the crowd. It was just about the, just that sort of, you know, that, that, that sort of mystical, magical feeling. I probably wow. wasn't listening to anybody. I think I was listening to the keyboard and that was it. That was my only reference to what we were actually doing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because that's what you were used to with playing with yes. your dad, just focusing on the piano. Correct. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't even know what the bass part was. I, you know, I don't even know who else was on the stage. But, uh, mm. um, but even, I mean, that's fun. But even the smaller crowds, I mean, they're fabulous as well. Like the, you do the mm. gig at the pub and, you know, you have... 50 people at the pub, they're they're almost... Comedians say that. I mean, I've heard Dave Chappelle say that. He says he prefers the small club where it's personal, Mm. it's interactive and people are yelling at you and you're you're there with the crowd. And I've never played anything bigger than I've just described. But I can imagine, you know, the stadium, there's that disconnect uh, where it's almost sort of like it's it's one-way traffic in a way. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Particularly with the lights, I'd imagine they don't see you know crowd of three, five, ten, fifty thousand or whatever. Um, mm. But uh, so I can't compare. Well, you watch, 
you watch like Queen at Live Aid, for example, and it's the difference between playing to a bunch of individuals and playing to an organism, like one giant organism. It must be it must be extraordinary playing to that kind of crowd. Yeah, and especially That's strange. when strange. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I mean, I dream about it. And mm. when the organism is all is is one, I think organisms are great great way to describe it. I mean, the psychology of the mob is fantastic. How mm. you turn, you know, twenty thousand individuals into just one, and they are all mm. just beating as one. Uh, mm. I mean, that's what Queen did it in Live Aid, didn't they? I mean, that crowd yeah. just became one. I mean, that's why it's gone down as legendary. Are there any? Are there any other organisms on the planet that? are quite as extraordinary at that as humans? Well, you see the animals that's, you know, like a school of fish, they you know, they do those amazing patterns, don't they, where they just, you know, they, mm. they seem to behave as one. You know, there's a school of fish and then a shark comes in and they swirl mm. around it. It's just like yeah. they're somehow communicating with some extraordinary, you know, yeah. mechanism that we can't understand. So... But is, is that more... A, 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 because humans, humans also have this, uh, we have this ability to get along with each other in really large groups of people. I remember hearing an, uh, an anthropologist say that uh, humans are amazing because we can get together in groups of 10 million people in a city and basically all follow the rules to, to not kill each other and not just be stealing everything all the time. It's... Yes, but what do you think? What do you think of humans? <laughs> <laughs> I love them, but yeah. I think with what you're saying there, that you get 10 million people in a city and they sort of follow the rules as law and order, and they get together as a society. Yeah, you know, there's there's not there is there is definitely a part of that that is down to the individual. The individual is acting in their best interest. Like it is in their best interest to not kill someone, to not steal something. They could do it, but then they've got to face the institution that is, you know, the, the police or whatever. Mm. So everyone's getting along because it's all in their interests to get along, right? Mm. Mm. But there's something more magical about music and that it transcends all individuality. It transcends mm. all culture, transcends all language, uh, and people genuinely do beat as one. Mm. It doesn't matter yeah. if you know the guys from Mexico yeah. or girls from, you know, from, yeah, from from the UK. It, it, whatever yeah. language we speak, if it's a band we all three of us love, there is just that mm. that innate understanding there, and all mm. differences disappear as well. Like you know, there's mm. there's there's just peace and harmony, and 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 everyone's everyone's just as one. It's it's a pretty powerful thing. I actually don't think it mm. happens anywhere else. And and to that extent, we kind of do become like the school of fish, where it's just all all happening completely in an involuntary fashion. Yeah, until you get that one drunk guy that just decides to oh, well <laughs> pull yeah, away from God. the crowd. That's that's why I'm trying to extricate myself from covers gigs. Um, <laughs> Wonderwall. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is fine. I don't mind someone yelling Wonderwall at me. So long as I start, because, you know, people will say, play Wonderwall. So I start playing Wonderwall and they go, woo. And then I look at someone in the crowd and they're going, boo. I'm like, fuck you. I'm trying to, 
Anyway, I, I'm getting too old and grumpy to deal with drunk dickheads in a pub, my friend. <laughs> I'm, I'm very one. interested in uh, the flow state and uh, or being in the zone, either musically or uh, in sport. Um, what happens to the and I and I call it kind of switching the brain off. You know, you you put in the practice so that you can enter that flow state or get in the zone where the brain is switched off. From a neurological point of view, what's what's happening in those moments in the brain? That's a great question. What's happening in the brain during the flow state? Uh, it happens oh. in surgery too, by the way. It's not just music or uh, or wow. sport. Uh, for example, uh, you know, when I'm in the flow state operating, um, mm. some very bizarre things happen. Um, mm. One of them is my eyes sting and they water, which is an autonomic response. And I've heard uh, Virat Kohli, the Indian cricketing superstar, talk about when he's mm. in the flow state, his eyes sting and they water. So is I'm that taking right? that. That's a sign. That's a real phenomenon. <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So it's just something bizarre. Just the whole... It's well described in the in the neuroscience literature. It's it's got something to do with attention. Like we have perception, which is the whole world around us, and then we have this incredible ability called attention, where we can just focus on something. And the classic thing is talking to someone in a crowded room. So it's called the cocktail mm. effect or cocktail party effect, I think it's called. So there's mm. lots of conversations going on, and then you're having a conversation with somebody in front of you, and you can zero in on that conversation and not hear anything else or be distracted by anything else that's going on. And that yeah. is a, a well-appreciated but poorly understood function of the brain. It's a phenomenal um, function of the brain. Um, and, and so we get it. So I, when I'm operating, that's what happens. The, everybody around me disappears. The theater disappears. My entire morning disappears. And mm -hmm. the other thing that happens is that my, the connection to my hands becomes sort of like some sort of phenomenal state it's not it's not doesn't feel like a physical connection i think yeah. about the movement and the movement happens i don't actually try and make it i just think about doing it and i think 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 and my hands are just following my thoughts mm. and, and and the other thing is the time distortion so time mm. just disappears so when i'm in the flow wow. state you know an hour can feel like five minutes um there's how a long is a how long do operations get when you're operating on someone's brain well, it's it's variable, but I I have done eighteen hours, but that's un, that's that's rare, thank God. The, a wow. Typical one we would be a couple of hours. Oh, is that right? Yeah, two or three hours. That's surprisingly short to to someone that doesn't know anything about brain surgery. <laughs> well, a lot of it's not that. Uh, there's some surgery that used to be done that was really difficult. Skull base surgeries down on the skull base. It's where all the cranial nerves are, all the blood vessels are. It's just tiger territory. And, you know, 20 years ago, they used to operate on this part of the brain to remove brain tumors. And then we got something called stereotactic radiosurgery where we can zap these tumors. So no actual operation. Right. You just get very focused um, and well-engineered radiotherapy. And that really sort of took away a lot of that complex skull-based right. stuff. So, But a lot of the stuff right. on the top is, you know, it's fairly accessible. And it, what's been trying to be, to be achieved is, is well-defined. And, yeah, a couple of hours. Mm, that's amazing. Mm. But that, that's, yeah, that, that's amazing. That flow state is uh, is phenomenal. I mean, yeah, yes, had it in. in yeah, we talked about 
in the, you know, with the band when everybody's just on a different level. That's mm. that's a that's a flow mm. state, but it's it's got something to do with attention. There's I was reading this um, book by uh, Ian McGilchrist, who is a philosopher and psychiatrist, and he has spent twenty years writing one book. <laughs> twenty years. Let me repeat that. Wow. Twenty years, and he has really condensed the research on the right and left side of the brain. So right. this is really the last word, and it's a fabulous book. It's called The Master and His Emissary. And uh, a lot of the study comes from birds. So birds have got this interesting thing where their eyes are obviously on the side of their head. Um, and they use their uh, right hemisphere to see the whole world. So that's really like an appreciation of everything. So it's looking out for mates and predators and taking the whole world in its context. And they yeah. use their left hemisphere to focus on individual things. So they use the feeding example. So it's feeding uh, trying to pick out a bit of grain from the from the grit on the ground. So it needs to be able to work out what's grain and what's grit and really focusing yeah. on the inanimate and the particulates and the you know, it's the detail. Whereas the right hemisphere is more interested in, 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 in the world in general and, and, and sort of you know the living world and, and how everything relates to it and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So I suspect that flow state is you know, potentially a left dominant or left hemisphere dominant function where the focus just becomes so narrow um, that that right. you know the, the otherworldly appreciation disappears. Oh, I mean, don't really is it actually is it actually basically cut the brain in half vertically and it's right and left, or is that just an easy way of putting it for the layperson? That is the brain is physically split. Like it, it, if you look at it, it is phys it's got a it's called the longitudinal mm -hmm. fissure, and it runs from front to back all the way through, mm -hmm. um, and it goes right down to the middle of the brain. So. Uh, it's probably I have to measure it. It's it's good seven centimeters from top down to where the bottom of the split finishes. But there's there are two physical halves oh. to it, and there's all these theories as to why the brain is split. Um, I actually mm. I think the theory is that you know if you have a big mass like jelly and it's just one big mm. mass, if you thrash your head, that's quite a big mass to flop around and get injured. But if you were to divide it in half, suddenly you've got two smaller masses. So the momentum right. of each is is significantly reduced. And I think the chances of injuring that brain are significantly reduced. And then there's right. another split called the Sylvian fissure, which splits either the right and the left into sort of half again. So I feel like that also further reduces the mass of the brain. So as you're moving around and thrashing or whatever, the likelihood right. of, of, you know, of, a, of a torsional injury or you know, a back forward sort of whiplash injury is, is avoided. And the other interesting thing right. is the brain floats in water. So it actually is, is buoyant. And the brain weighs what? about 1.4 kilograms, you know, on, on a set of scales. But it's, mm. it's in warm seawater and it has the equivalent weight of about 50 grams. So it's got this incredible water cushion around it. Wow. Um, and so that's basically like throwing a bowling ball at a wall versus a tennis ball. Like it's a, it's a very mm. powerful effect. Um, but yeah, back to the split wow. brain. I think this, well... Ian McGilchrist was looking at why the brain was split, but I think there's a mechanical part to it literally that reduces the momentum either side, reduces injury, mm. add the water mm. cushion into it as well, reduces likelihood injury to the brain. But yeah, it's definitely split. And an operation going down that split, man, that's like nothing else. That's like that's like descending in some sort of, you know, terrifying underwater cave and just going down and down and down and down into the depths and like, where am I going to finish? And everything under the so microscope it, is, you know, is, is terrifying. So you're, you're cutting into that into that hemisphere the, the split between the two hemispheres 
Well, it's it's the split's already there, so it's it's the, mm. the space is already there. So literally, just going down through that space, mm. there's all this connective tissue that's got to be divided to release and open up that space. But the split is already there. But it's a mm. really cool thing to just descend millimeter by millimeter down this natural crevice. Wow! <laughs> and you wow. see these see these blood vessels under the micro. The blood vessels are the coolest thing because a blood vessel, you know, it, it thumps to the heartbeat, and on the anaesthetic machine, it just feels it's just a beep beep, right? It's like child's play. Mm. But mm, under a microscope, mm. an artery is. Doof, doof, doof. Like, wow. Like a that. kick drum. Yes. Don't <laughs> touch that. <laughs> don't touch the kick drum. <laughs> do, you, do you feel like an explorer? I mean, the way you describe that, I feel like you're exploring space or something. Feels like it. Mm. Uh, first time going down, it, it feels more like I'm terrified of water. So I use an underwater analogy like going into some sort of cave. Yeah, you know, there's scuba divers mm. going to caves. Yeah. What yeah. the hell is with that? That's oh, my, that's my yeah. nightmare. Like, yeah, you know, some terrifying. sort of three-eyed octopus or, you know, some sort of, you know, dagger-carrying shark. You know, why would you do that? <laughs> why? I love the fact that these people are in very dangerous situations in underwater caves and you're afraid that there might be a shark carrying a dagger. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's more rational things to be afraid of, my, or that's a three-eyed fear, mate. octopus. That's not rational. It's just... Yeah, that's that's yeah. true. That's true. Am I an explorer? Um, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say. So. I don't know. I I like to I like to explore things. Absolutely. Um, mm. They call me the agitator. That's my uh, unfortunate nickname because I'm always agitating. Like the, the the water is never calm when I'm around. It's it's always got ripples because I'm always asking questions or wanting to find out about this or look at that or find out about this. Um, All of those are good things though, right? Uh, yes and no. I had to strike a balance. Like at med school, someone would say, we're going to talk about the sodium potassium ATPase, which is a channel in the membrane. And I would like, I cannot, I, I refuse to accept this fact because I want to see evidence for it. Show me that you've actually physically looked at this sodium potassium ATPase. I want to know where the evidence is. How do you know it even exists? Uh, right. And so I would then go digging through the literature and find out. So where did someone actually looked at this thing? Do, is this is this a fact? Do we know this for sure? Genetics was and a nightmare. And had they? Had they? Sort of. <laughs> There's, right. They. I I believe them now. <laughs> I've, right. I've seen what right. they've done, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so you we have yeah we sort of looked at it, but. Uh, so I'm always exploring I the truth, I think, is what the bottom line is. I, I don't want to accept just anything. I, 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 yes. I think I'm always exploring and looking for the truth in, in, in anything. So, well, I, I can't see anything but positive to that. Um, do you, speaking of exploring the truth, one of the things that I've been fascinating when I've been, I've, I've been really fascinated to have this conversation and, and so many questions have come up. How how do, do you get spiritual? Do, does does this raise spiritual questions, or does it put them to rest? The more you learn about the brain, do I get spiritual? I can answer this question. Mm. I can answer this question. I'll, t I'll tell you a very quick story, okay, which will answer your question. This 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 sums up uh, pretty much what you're looking for. So mm. when I started neurosurgery, for me, it was all about structure, anatomy, right? That was just a physical brain. It was beautiful. 
and it was all about the microsurgery, like which is really a sport in itself. You know, I watch this guy who is like a robot. He's like painting a, you know, one of those car painting robots. He's literally, his hands are just beautiful. It's like, do, 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 do. Mm. No, it's just fabulous. Mm. So the science of surgery, and then it's all about the physical stuff. That's what I absolutely loved. And then yeah. three years ago, it was three years ago, uh, I was doing an operation and I was, I was a consultant. I was second year out as fully qualified and it was something called an awake craniotomy. So the brain is exposed during an operation, but the patient under the drape is awake and talking. Mm. And that's necessary for a number of reasons, which I won't go into, but that's the situation. And... I had this epiphany. So I looked at the brain, which I looked at a thousand times, and then I looked under the drape and I looked at the patient and I saw the patient looking back at me. And the thing about that was that patient was having an experience. They were experiencing the world. They were conscious, right? Mm. And then I go back to looking at the brain and then I go back to looking at the patient having experience and then suddenly it dawned on me. Well, I wouldn't say dawn, it whacked me in the back of the head. The mind-body problem. Like it was just a bolt of lightning out of the blue. There was the physical brain and there was this phenomena of consciousness and I had the unique situation of seeing the actual brain that was doing that experience. Like it was the same mm. brain. Mm. And I could s suddenly understand the problem of that physical thing, which is just a bunch of cells conducting electricity, creating this phenomena of consciousness something that nobody in the history of mankind has been able to solve. Mm. And more interesting, so there was the gap, the gap between the physical and, you know, whatever consciousness is, the mind-body yeah. problem. And the other thing, there's just no hint on that brain as to how it was pulling off that trick. Like there was no mm. sparkles on the surface of the brain when the patient was saying, hello, how's it going? Mm. Parts of the mm. brain didn't glow green. There was no distortion in the atmosphere. Like God didn't mm. boom down from the heavens or anything like that. It was mm. just... Nothing, just white brain boof, boof, pulsating with a heartbeat, and there's consciousness. Mm. I was like, mm. How the hell does a physical thing create that? And it was just mm. astonishing for me to see it all in one go. Like, obviously, you can see a brain in a bottle and look at someone being conscious, but to see the brain creating it at the same time, yeah, I got to appreciate that mind body problem. And so, huh. it's not spiritual, but it is, it is a it's become an absolute fascination in it's not really i don't know if it's really philosophical but there is some magic happening there and i appreciate mm. that and my focus has moved beyond just the structure and the anatomy and the science of operating to more mm. this sort of you know philosophical dilemma that is the mind body problem because i've had that first hand experience and a real epiphany during surgery of what the nature mm. of that problem is and wow. it's a phenomenal trick like it is pulling off a phenomenal trick and we i mean we're having it now i mm. mean yeah in your head it's you know it's it's pitch black and it's definitely quiet and there's no color there's no sound there's no nothing it's just it's just it's black and quiet yet you're yeah. having this you know the, the all the senses are, are meaning something to you and feeling like something to you yeah and yeah. we don't know how that tissue and those cells and electricity is creating that mm. um so it's not spiritual but it mm. is it is philosophical i guess mm which yeah. is unusual for me because I'm very much, I mean, I'm a drummer, mate, so <laughs> I don't think too deeply about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say spiritual. I, I, my dad is was very... Is it a case? 
is it a case of the more you the more you know the more you know you don't know so the the more you learn about the brain does that answer more questions than it raises or is it the other way around it's definitely the other or way is that around. a stupid question no that's not a stupid question at all it's a very it's a great question and but the answer is the more you know the less you know Absolutely. So things that are right. stated as fact when you're learning, this part of the brain does this, this part of the brain does that. Mm. And then the more you start to know about that, you realize, well, actually, that's just a complete oversimplification. It's incredibly more complex, more nuanced. You know, it's it's mm. hard to summarize in a sentence. It's hard to summarize it in an essay, what the subtle differences mm. are and, and the subtlety of the whole thing. So, you know, I mean, Ian McGilchrist's book, The Master and His Emissary, is a perfect example of that. I mean, it's taken him... 20 years in this thick book to just mm. try and nail down the nuances of the understanding of the function of the human brain. Mm. Uh, and it raises even more questions than it gives answers. So mm. the, uh, Is that daunting? No, it's just, it's, it's fascinating because if you'd asked Caesar to explain DNA, he'd be like, mm. DNA, what, what are you talking about? Well, the stuff, yeah. you know, the stuff that's used for inheritance. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. Fast forward a few mm. thousand years, people can tell you what DNA is, and the only difference is mm. technology. So I feel yeah. at some point this incredible mystery will be solved. It'll probably just come down to, to, to technology. But the world's more interesting mm. when we don't understand it. I think. I mean, I think there's great beauty in the kind of thinking that we really don't know shit. But that's the great thing about it. I mean. You know, mm. we play music to try and understand stuff better, express ourselves better because we don't know how to express it or yeah, you know, or we don't know what's going to happen when we go and do something. Uh, the, the world would be a very boring place if we had the answers for everything. Absolutely. Yeah. How, I mean, how much... Sorry. No, I was just going to say that's, I mean, that's really pretty much just, you know, a tax accountant, isn't it? They know everything. They've got, you know, tax you know, yeah. can come in. Yeah. Like they, they, can, they can tell you the answers to everything they, in their world. Yeah. That's why yeah. it's not a very interesting world. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I so mean, the, the, the less we know about something, the more fascinating it, it, it is. I never went to an Oasis concert and I really wish that I had the chance to. But a lot of people said that they, a big part of the attraction was they just didn't know what was going to happen. Like, what was Liam going to actually do? <laughs> like, there's this, yeah, this big yeah. unknown, there's this loose cannon who could do anything. But I think that's generalizable. I think, you know, when there's that unknown, that's where the spice of life is. Mm, so it's mm. it's fabulous we don't understand the brain it's it's really interesting to try and you know guesstimate what bits do and theorize about it and philosophize about it and and look mm. at it and and uh I mean, it must be like you on a guitar you know you like you jump on a guitar you don't really know what you're going to play i mean you don't like playing covers that's boring right because you you know what you're going to play but improvisation you don't know yeah. what's going to happen that's the bit yeah yeah improvisation is just a, a magic thing and it it, it begs the question where does creativity come from if it, it what how would you answer that where does where does creativity come from where do bursts of inspiration come from well they used to say that the right hemisphere was the creative side of the brain right and the left was the logical one and yeah. that came from uh, what they called split brain research where people were having epilepsy and so they split the connection between the two parts of the brain. So electrical storm on one side couldn't spread to the, to the other side and cause a generalized seizure. And that gave them a window to study 
there's the brain in two halves separately because this right is right. literally disconnected from the left. So they could do these tests and and see what the right does um, separately to the left. And it was a unique opportunity to to study them separately. Mm. And the latest, and again, this comes back to the master and his emissary. The latest would say that creativity is done on both sides of the brain. The right and the left are equally important. It's just so it's not a matter of what it does, like what does the right do and what does the left do, because they both do both. It's a more mm. of a question of the manner in which they do it. Right. So the right hemisphere, um, as I said, is more about the broader view of the world and your interaction and your embodiment within the world itself. Now you can see how that's important for a creative process. And then the left hemisphere mm. is really about narrowing down and probably that really focused attention and possibly even that flow state. And you can see mm. how that's really, really important for creativity as well. Mm. So that's what I find interesting. Rather than saying, oh, this is the part of the brain, this little part here, mm. that's your creativity spot. <laughs> that yeah, doesn't exist. Yeah. But it's, yeah. and it's And that would be boring to talk about, but it's much more interesting to say, it's like, it's like the perfect complementary partners. You know, you've got, you know, one of the partners is really good at this and does that, and the other is really, really mm. good at this and does that, and then they become greater than the sum of their parts. So yeah, the right yeah. side of the brain is very good at, Taking the living world and, the, and sort of you know everything in context and you know and and relationships and all that sort of stuff, and the left side mm. of the brain is really good at zeroing in on focusing on something particular and sort of taking the context out of taking it out of context and just looking at it as a sort of you know just a, a particular of, of 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 information or or whatever, and you can see how together those two, you know, would be important for, for improvisation. Mm, so absolutely. I think that's that's the contemporary modern way of thinking about creativity. So, how does um, neuroplasticity come into that? In the but so, like probably many people, my only real knowledge of any of this stuff is I read the the brain that changes itself. Um, and for for those of us that are listening that don't know that, that's basically saying that if you lose the part of your brain that moves this finger the brain can learn to remap that so that this finger can move again. Um, how does that all tie into the left and right hemisphere creative kind of side of things? Well, neuroplasticity is a real phenomenon. There's no question about that. But it's only to a certain degree. So, I mean, there's two, there's, there's really two. There's one where you're recovering from injury, right? So someone has a stroke and yep. they can't move something and then they start to get some recovery. Uh, and then there's the other where there's learning. So if you're learning to play Wonderwall, <laughs> you get better and better and better at it. That's also a form of neuroplasticity. And yeah, right. Yeah. So this is, and they used to talk about, you know, is hmm. it is it growing new neurons? Is it growing new connections? Well, a modern theory would suggest it's about the synapse, or where the the two the two uh, brain cells communicate. There's something going on in the synapse that is really important for learning uh, and function. It's not necessarily about the the cell itself and the electrical current going across the cell. It's the magic that's happening in the synapse. Mm. Mm. But neuroplasticity mm. is, is, is very interesting. We know that it's better when you're young. So young people learn stuff very, very easily. Like my niece is trilingual. Um, and she's not had to. She's not had to learn that. She just picks it up from listening to her parents speak at home, and they yeah. absorb it like a sponge. Mm. And the same with learning stuff. But people who have a stroke. So 
if they have a stroke that infects their arm, they don't get all of that back. They get they may get some of it back. Yeah. So it's certainly it's it's limited in terms of recovering from injury, and it's hard to learn as we get older. But the neuroplasticity and learning as a kid is is quite phenomenal. Mm. And I wonder if when it comes to creativity that you learn something and that gives you a platform to go to the next level of the video game and you're just you're mm. able to explore the world with more tools and that opens up your creativity like is mm. each, each bit of learning like a like a tool or a, a weapon where you get to sort of conquer each level and therefore you get to explore more they looked mm. at creativity mm. in savants you know people who you know or autistic talented autistic people and there's mm. theories about why they're able to do what they're they're able to do yeah um what are those theories because that's quite extraordinary stuff. Well, it's they call it top down or bottom up. So top down is the thinking. Again, this is sort of this is sort of uh, symbolic. But the top down is you know your thinking brain. You think about what you're doing, and then the bottom up is all the sensory information. So the auditory, the visual, everything, the sen the feeling, and that's a very slow process. All this sensory information, that the 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 top down information thing is all about pattern recognition. So the more developed that is, the quicker you can recognize something. I, Pick up, oh, that's a cup, right. you know, or yeah. um, you yeah. see something, oh, that's a bird, you know. It's, it's an instant pattern recognition. And they say that yeah. a lot of the brain's functions about a balance between um, recognition and surprise or prediction and surprise. Predict, correct, right. predict, correct, predict, surprise. What was that? Now I learnt about that. Now I can predict I'm correct, predict and I'm correct. So right. they're saying with, um, you know, with, with savants that they, they have a disruption in the, the top-down part. Mm. So their predictive model is defective which frees them up to reinterpret the sensory information that's coming up to their brain. And so they've, they've got more wriggle room to interpret that in different ways. And, you know, mm. one, one definition of creativity is really it's originality. It's seeing something from a different point of view. And mm. so hence this top-down, bottom-up thing that perhaps with these savants where they've got disrupted top-down thinking, that they're mm. not limited by sort of our standard pattern recognition pathways mm. they're sort of uh, they've got you know this they're allowed to sort of think about it in a more organic way without sort of being uh, boxed in by this is wow. a bird or you know this is this yeah, or this yeah. is this they go oh, oh this is uh, no, i think this might express it like this and the rest of us go mm. oh my god that is brilliant how did you come up with that <laughs> yeah have uh, have there been ex extensive kind of neurological tests done on savants as to what's happening and what's firing at those moments yes it's uh so the best tool is functional mri fmri um but it's a, it's mm -hmm. it's 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 rubbish i even did a research project using functional mri scan it's it's rubbish <laughs> it's hopeless <laughs> basically, so the best way is just to chop someone's skull off and have a look at what's going well, on we need a better scan an fmri scan is like it's it just shows blood flow. So it doesn't even tell you what part of the brain's active. It just tells you where the blood's flowing to the brain. And it's right. very, very rough. Like, you know, it covers big portions of the brain. And, and, and also where you calibrate it. You know, it can be really sensitive or low sensitivity depending right. on which parts of the brain will light up. So there's a lot of yeah. downsides. So, but you, and you, uh, once they're in the fMRI scanner, you can't recreate creativity. Like, they've tried it. I've seen them do it. You know, they get a beatboxer in the MRI scan and they get them just to... to, to to improv in the MR scanner. Mm. But mm. is that real creativity? I mean, what you really want to know is what 
Einstein's brain looked like when he had his greatest thought, you know, mm. or, you know, what was going, what Jackson Pollock's brain looked like when he was doing convergence, you know, or what, mm. what, did, what did Keith Richards' brain activity look like when he woke up in the middle of the night with satisfaction, you know, what, that's yeah. what, yeah. that's creativity, that's, what, that's the brain patterns I want to know. Keith Richards' brain, probably no brain activity because he's probably stoned yeah, yeah, or both. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, so it's very but, hard I mean, to test there... it. And it's very hard to recreate creativity in the, in, the, in the scientific setting. So are you saying that uh, just simply because they created monumental art or in Einstein's case, he's creating something that completely changed our understanding of the natural world that that would be a different thing to, say, someone who's freestyling? Because it, let's say you get a, a, a beatboxer or a freestyler who's creating something off the top of their head. Is there a different uh, thing happening in the brain to someone who's really done something mind-blowingly extraordinary? Or is that the conjecture and you're saying, that's why I'd love to see what was happening at that moment? Correct. Yeah, so no great work of art was ever done in an MRI scanner. It just wasn't. So in the beatboxer, for example, they did the scan and the thing that blew up, that shone the most was his cerebellum, which is, you know, is well recognised as a motor centre of the brain. It's where coordination is really, really important. So, right. um, so both sides of the cerebellum were bright red on the scan. What does that say? Well, is it because he was having to move his mouth really, really fast? Is it because he was he was extracting random words from from the universe and putting them together in a really creative way. Is that what that means? Who mm. knows what that means? Nobody knows mm. what that means. Mm. Now, you you have physically had someone's skull like completely off, is that right? And secondly, while they're playing a musical instrument. Uh, that's that's the classic, isn't it? Everybody's seen that. The uh, person well, playing the violin or the guitar. Or the guitar yeah. in, it's like the money shot. <laughs> I, I, I know. And, and look, how can I not talk about the money shot? Uh, particularly when it's a podcast about music and creativity. Um, first of all, the first time you experienced that, uh, what was that like? Well, I have to say I've not had a patient play guitar in theatre, but it's the same thing I was saying before. It's the awake cranial where the patient's awake during an operation. Yeah. So for mine, it was actually about speech. Uh, they were speaking during the operation, then I would stimulate it and see which part of the brain is the speech part and then obviously stay away from that. But for the guitar... How do you stimulate the, it? Oh, it's a, it's a, little, um, a little bipolar probe which current, uh, transmits a little current. Mm-hmm. And... When that lands, so you put it on the brain and you stimulate, then you take it off and go to the next bit and stimulate. When it lands on the speech area, the patient will stop talking. Wow. So you think it'd be the opposite, like you're stimulating the speech, they'd start speaking like, you know, Shakespearean or swearing or speaking French or something like really cool would happen. But nothing cool happens. It just goes, they just stop talking. (laughs) Wow. But, But that's what you're looking for. So with the guitar, that is actually not the guitar playing part of the brain. It's actually just the hand part of the brain. So it's right. the motor strip. So uh, if they, they'll play, you know, Stairway to Heaven in A minor, and then when you hit the hand part of the brain, it'll become Twinkle Twinkle Little Star in A fucked, basically. Wow. <laughs> so they uh, go, and just nothing, like the guitar will just stop because the, 
the motor pathway has been interrupted. So, mm. yeah, the whole violin and and, um, and guitar thing. Unfortunately, that's not the brilliant guitar playing part of the brain. I can't tell you which part that is. That's that's quite <laughs> it's okay. Just, just the motor. So, so so you've got someone talking to you, completely conscious, and their skulls off. Do you do you? Is it literally like go around the skull and pop it off like a bowl? Pretty much, yeah. There's a drill. There's a really powerful drill um, called a craniotome, and it's air powered and just basically, <laughs> and then Amazing. they have to lever it off because a there's a watertight seal around the brain. Remember, I said the brain's floating in water, mm. so there's a there's a watertight seal around it. That's usually stuck to the bone. You've got to lever that off and strip it off the bone, and the bone literally is a flap. Like I've got one here. Um, right. oh, that is a real skull and wow. uh, that that is sort of what you know a piece of the skull will look like when it comes off and so you take that off and then there's the watertight seal and then get a pair of scissors and open up the watertight seal and then peel that back and voila there is, so is one of is one of your patients walking around with a hat on all the time because you forgot to put their skull back on <laughs> We never forget to put on. But there are <laughs> operations where we don't put the skull back on. So they actually have to wear one of those uh, rugby helmets uh, wow. or skull cups. Yeah, But that's different because they've had an accident and yeah. their brain has uh, swelled really badly from the trauma. And so the skull can't go back on after taking the blood clot out because there's just no room. The brain's expanding out of the skull because there's so much pressure. Right. So you leave the skull off and let them recover. And after about six weeks when everything is settled back down again, then they come back to surgery and have the skull put back on. Hmm. Does it? Do you still get a sense of awe when you when you're in those moments, or is it? Do you become blasé about it? Yes, blasé about the trauma ones because the trauma one is a phone call at two o'clock in the morning. So there's nothing, right. nothing great about that. That's uh, right. yeah, and it's always the same. It's always young males. It's always the same. It's alcohol and speed. And they get together and it just ruins their brain. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, you're operating on their head. But mm. the awake craniotomy, that's that, yes. Like that epiphany that I had, that was, that's a real deal. Like that was a mm. real mind-bending experience of mm. realization about something pretty great. Hmm. Is, there, is there any danger at that moment that you're having this incredible epiphany that that's going to take over and you're somehow going to make a mistake? Michael, during that, that particular epiphany, I had to sit down. I actually had to sit down and my assistant continued the operation temporarily. Like right. literally the universe was standing behind me, you know, and when I had my epiphany, it just went kadunk into the back wow. of my head and I was just like rattled. Like it was a big deal. Like that, that realization, putting the two together, physical brain, conscious experience in the same person at the mm. same time, seeing that was like a big deal for me. So I actually mm. had to sit down. I was a bit rattled. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's wild. That's wild. Um, so when you, you know, when you when you're talking to someone in that moment, are they freaking out? Uh, I mean, you're not having a normal conversation because they're aware of the fact that this is going yeah. on. What what's that conversation like? If they're freaked out, you haven't done your job. So they they go through a lot before the operation. You know, right. you, I talk them through it and say, this is what's going to happen. Uh, this is what you're going to expect. And it's really an important part of the process because the last mm. thing you want is an uncooperative patient mm. during an operation. So if they wake up 
for the awake part of the surgery and their brain is exposed and they start having a panic attack or mm. they're going, what the hell is going on? It's a complete disaster. You can't do the testing. The brain will swell. They'll possibly have a seizure. Lots of bad things happen. So right. it doesn't happen very often, not because there's not enough cases to do it, but because you've got to choose the right patient, someone who's actually going to go, yeah, okay, I, I agree to wake up during my surgery. <laughs> if that's what's yeah, good yeah. for me, I'm, I, I'll do it. And you've got to trust that they're, you know, they understand what they're up for and mm. that they're going to you know, follow the instructions. So they're well Do they remember beforehand. it? That's a great question. And yes, they do, but not in the sort of detail that I had it. So they, they remember being awake vaguely and, and talking. And even interestingly, when they're talking and then I stimulate it and they stop talking, then I take the stimulator off and they start talking again, they don't have much memory of not being able to talk. For them, it was just like a gap that didn't exist. Or they right. sort of say, oh, I, I think I missed something. I think I had a little problem. And it's, and it's really not sort of crystal clear as to what was going on when they, when they had that problem. If, if mm. you stimulate that part of the brain mid-sentence and they stop and then you remove the stimulation, do they continue the sentence? Yes. Yeah, but the way it's usually done is that someone is holding up uh, little cards they've got pictures and they just have to say what the picture is and so they're just going card 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 um or sometimes right. counting down from 20 or whatever it might be um but uh yeah usually they just pick up from where they left off with with very little uh recognition that there was a problem two seconds ago wow yeah that's it's wild it that's is wild it is it's tapping into some you know how the brain generates consciousness is like it is a universal problem. Like, yeah, that's up there with black holes and, you know, the Big Bang. It's like that's – it is a mega, mega mystery of the universe. Yeah. And there it is right in front of me, you know. It's like yeah. it's happening. It's like, why can't you just tell me the answer? Give me the answer. Yeah. Like, you're right yeah. there. Just yeah. tell yeah. me how you yeah. do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the, the, the old um, – the, the old thing that I've heard my whole life is that we use 10% of our brain. Uh, you know, how accurate is that? Yeah, it's, well, it's completely bollocks. It's like the uh, right and left, right, creative, left, logical uh, thing. It's, um, it's, it gets into pop culture and then it's impossible to get out of pop culture. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's, it is... Is that uh, when you look at a savant, for example, and you, you know, measure what's going on there, or you, you know, we know that they're doing extraordinary things. Is that how it gets into popular culture that, oh, well, there are people that can do these incredible calculations and so the rest of us aren't. How does that become a thing? Yeah, I think it's, uh, that's exactly what happens. They see these people that can memorize 10,000 numbers or uh, you know, can draw these incredible pictures or you know, whatever they might be able to do. And then people say, well, anybody can do that if they could just release that potential. You know, The potential is in there in all of us and we just need to be able to find a way to hack our brain and release that ability to do X, Y, and Z. Mm. But it's not actually the case because it's, right. there is, there's something else going on in their brain. Like I said, they've got... They've got a deficit. They're not normal. Yeah, they're, they're, they've got functions they can't perform, and a yep. lot of that is psychosocial. So that's that that top-down information top down, processing. So. Yeah, that is actually default in their brain, which mm -hmm. you know has liberated the upcoming you know the, the upcoming sensory information. So 
Um, mm. We all have potential to do things, uh, but the 10% you know, complete rubbish. I mean, mm. there's an estimate about 5% of the, what your brain act, of your brain's activity is actually conscious. So you're aware of 5% of your brain's activity and 95% of the brain's activity is happening below the level of consciousness. That's all right. in a sub, yeah. you know, we can't hack that, we can't get into that. But if you're talking about- Is that measurable, know, the subconscious? Yeah, Someone has, I've, I need to read that paper, but uh, I was listening to uh, two colleagues talk about it. It was even to, it was like 95.44% of the brain's activity is subconscious, which is very, very specific. <laughs> and I, I don't know how they measured it. I need to look at how they measured it. It'd be very interesting yeah. to find out how they did that, whether it was EEG um, or hopefully not functional MRI. But um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I hate those functional MRIs after no, what rubbish. you told me before. Just yeah. rubbish machines. But you talk about potential, Michael. Like one thing that is interesting about potential, like can I become a concert pianist? Probably not. Can I hack my brain to become that? Probably not. But drugs are really interesting. Like, you mm. know, I don't condone that or take them, but people take LSD and they have these experiences, which is a very exaggerated sensory experience, right? And, mm. and they have some quite phenomenal experiences. That is interesting because that doesn't just come from nowhere. Mm. That does release neurotransmitters in the brain, which then creates that experience. So that potential is in the brain. Right. Like the feeling of the people right. get when they take something or the visual auras or the, you know, they describe it as like the biggest, warmest hug they've ever had and, you know, the, the, the kaleidoscope vision or whatever it might be. That's, it, in a way, it's distorted perception, but that's, that is all potential of the brain that's being, un, you know, unreleased by, um, or being released by, by, by drugs. So, you know, there is untapped potential there and, and a lot of our brain function sort of keeps it all in check. But drugs are interesting because it does unlock stuff. Mm. Like, you know, people have these incredible experiences. Well, their mm. brain was always able to have that incredible experience. It didn't come from nowhere. It was already there. It's just mm. that the drug was able to unlock that. And whether it unlocks it or whether it just scrambles the signal, who, mm. who really knows? But um, are, there, are there lots of tests done on that? A lot of people who research consciousness come from a background of having lived through the 70s and LSD, yeah, psychedelics, yeah. Right. And because they take it and then it, that's their epiphany, that's their awake craniotomy. Like my awake craniotomy was their LSD in the 70s, you know, and that's what's mm. prompted a lifetime um, uh, research into it. So that's wild. Um, yeah. Hmm. So don't take drugs, kids. But <laughs> from well, a, a from a new from a neurological perspective, it can be fascinating. The problem with drugs, Sage, very isn't a side. The problem is not what it does to you; it's what you do to other people while on it. That's that's always the problem. Well, people say, "Don't tell me what I can take. I can take whatever I want." Well, that is true. Mm. You can absolutely take what you want, yeah. but it's while you're un, under the influence and what you what influence yeah. you exert on other people while you're under the influence. That's the problem. Yeah. 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 My my mum has always had a, a fascination with the power of the mind to heal the body. How much do you know about that? Or the, you as in the neuroscience community? I'm gonna be very, very respectful here because we're talking about your mum here. But Thank I will you. say from a surgical, so here's an example from a surgical point of view. So someone has brain cancer mm -hmm. and I know all the literature about brain cancer. I know what the operation looks like. I know 
what the outcome after surgery is going to be. I know what the outcome from radiotherapy and chemotherapy looks like. Like I know what that looks like. And I also know about the exceptions to the rule, but I know why they're an exception to the rule. And I also know what eventually also happens to them. And then there are people who have the brain cancer who will decide not to have surgery or take adjuvant chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and go down an alternative route of, uh, you know, it could be prayer, um, herbals, um, you know, uh, other sort of um, mind bodies of exercises to try and counter. I mean, Steve Jobs was an example with his pancreatic cancer. Mm. Um, he didn't take chemotherapy for a, for quite some time. Mm. Um, so I've always struggled with it because I see uh, science has looked at, science knows what the outcome is. Science has, has got a proven effect on the condition. Uh, it's been shown time and time and time again, if we do this surgical technique and we apply this drug and this radiotherapy at this dose, then you know the outcome is better. Yeah. And so it's very, it's very, it's very narrow-minded, but it's very hard to get away from that, especially when there's no evidence to the contrary. Mm. Um, and part of me feels, a small part of me feels that it's not so much a reflection that there is any validity in the alternative, but it's just a reflection of sometimes, I mean, desperation. You know, it's, mm. um, it's, I think there's a much bigger psychology at play there when someone has been given some terrible diagnosis or a terminal diagnosis, you know, they're going to fight it. Um, yeah. They don't believe what the doctor's going to, what will the doctor know? Um, and they're going to do everything they can to get on top of that. And if someone gives them hope or if something gives them hope, it's very hard to stay away from that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, Tim Minchin has a great line in one of his songs, I think it was, or a preamble to one of his songs where he's talking about alternative medicine. And he said, do you know what... Uh, alternative medicine that's been proven to work is called Science. medicine. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> um, but what about, okay, so not necessarily someone with a major diagnosis, but where my mum would always use it is pain management. I've got a headache. Uh, how is the, is the brain capable of doing basic pain management and things like that? Yeah, yeah, def definitely in that case. Right. I mean, even at the simplest level when someone has pain and then they're distracted so their attention is focused on something else and they, think they don't register the pain, that's mm. well described. And right. a lot of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is, is trying to tap into that. So whether there are distractions or uh, mental um, uh, methods of... Uh, of dealing with I abs that absolutely does work when it comes to mm. pain. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes Do we know better... why? Not strictly, but again, I think a big part of it comes down to uh, uh, perception and attention. So again, you know, on one side, we've got, we're seeing the whole world and experiencing the whole world, including the pain syndrome. And the other is what we're narrowly focused on. And, you know, the classic one in science you know, that has been shown is that people have, you know, some sort of pain syndrome and they're distracted you know short or long term by something else by a mindset or an activity or something or a hobby or something and it takes their mind off the pain they stop registering pain mm. because they've got the phenomena of attention has been direct, directed elsewhere mm. so it'll be something to do you know like that between the right and left hemisphere but there's no question it works how does it work it's one of those questions that, that gets raised yeah 
Yeah. But I, I, I for pain, it absolutely does work. There's mm. some pain is it doesn't work, but um, um, yeah, there's there's no question. I mean, people go and see a pain specialist. CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy is a big part of that of managing that, and and mm. and, and, and it works. Yeah. Mm. That's that's fascinating. Uh, one thing that always blew my mind was that the, one of the biggest innovations in, in medical science was washing hands between surgeries. Uh, is that, sorry, you, you smiled as if to say, no, that's not a thing. No, is I'm that, just really that, impressed that you've, you've, you've looked this up. Like, I, I feel like you've, you know that I'm a surgeon and you've gone and looked at something to do with surgery and science and you've put this question. In yeah. I think it's really yeah. impressive. I, ge I generally don't pay attention to this, to this shit, but I just Googled it. No, it's something I've always been fascinated by is that the, the biggest, uh, well, one of the, 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 the things that changed the outcome of surgery was simply learning to wash hands, uh, which obviously to us in this modern age is, seems so ridiculous, but it was such a simple thing that had such a profound income on and particularly um, childbirth as well, I, I, I believe. Um, is That's... it possible that there is something in our future that people will look back on and, and go, do you know that in 2022, they didn't even realize this simple thing? Uh, is it possible that there's such a simple thing that we haven't overlooked, that, that, that we've overlooked up until now? I think that's definitely going to happen. It happens with knowledge. Like it happens with knowledge now. Like something I know now, 20 years ago, you're like, do they really believe that? 20, they, is that what they thought 20 years ago? Mm. Really? Mm. Stupid. Yeah. You're like these yeah. professors of neurosurgery. Stupid. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. That, that will absolutely happen. There's no question about that. Um, the, the hand washing thing is in fast that's you know sep being aseptic was a was a was a there were a couple of really big things in surgery one was localization being able to tell which part of the brain does what and therefore be able to work out which part of the brain to operate on mm. um, anesthesia was another big turning point in surgery and that story is fantastic like that's a fantastic story mm. just very quickly anesthesia I'd love to, to hear that <laughs> Or just two sec two second story. They used to use alcohol. It can, right? You can be longer. You know. You, you know. I've got time, right? <laughs> well, they used to use alcohol for anaesthesia, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't the patient because yeah, you know, alcohol numbs pain, right? <laughs> yeah. And we've all been yeah, you know, we've all been drunk, and we you know we wake up next morning, there's blood pouring out of our leg or something like what? What the hell happened there? I didn't feel that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they use the alcohol, but the but the patient didn't get the alcohol back in the old days. It used to be the surgeon used to take the alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> so they were like, just hang on a second, lady. I'm just going to have a swig of this whiskey to calm my nerves, and then I'll get back to your operation. Are you good to go? <laughs> like, when was this? It was back in 1800s. They used to, what? The, uh, the surgeon used to take the swig, and the poor old patient didn't get any. <laughs> oh, my God. You're kidding. Yeah. But anesthesia was a big one. And then um, aseptic technique or, you know, sepsis. The biggest one by far when it comes to infection was antibiotics. You know, when mm. when in the 1940s antibiotics were invented, that and we have level one evidence. We have the, it's the highest evidence you can have for anything in surgery. It's one of the few things in surgery that has level one evidence, and that is antibiotics at the beginning of the operation significantly reduces infection. Right. Yeah. 
Um, but it's and the first guy when it comes to hand washing, he did hand washing. He used gloves and a gown, and mm. I don't recall the date, but it wasn't that. It was I think it was late eighteen hundreds. He did that. He was ridiculed. He was a well-respected surgeon. He was ridiculed by his mates going, what the frig are you wearing? What are this? What's with the gloves and the gown? Because they used to do like surgical demonstrations and they just like they'd have their open you know, their hands and then like, you know, an apron on. And that was pretty much it. It's like gloves and a gown. Like, are you, what, what is this stupidity? <laughs> I mean, the, but, uh, it's so mind-blowing hmm. to us in this day and age. Yeah, but isn't and it a great, a great example of just accumulation of knowledge, you know, yeah. standing on, on the shoulders of giants, you know, and just eventually we get to the point where we are at the moment. But was that, to a certain extent, was that just dumb luck? Or did he have a theory that there were, that there were things that we couldn't see that could have been causing infection? Yeah, that, that is exactly what it is. These guys, you read, about, you read the history of this, and like I read the, the biography of these guys, and there's one common pattern and that is they were curious about something um, but they then went and investigated it like they actually decided to sit down and spend five years ten years actually trying to work something out and trying to figure something out you know the guy who was able to visualize the the brain cell for the first time he spent 20 years perfecting that technique because he was curious about something what Uh, can you describe what that is visualizing the brain cell well for a very long time we no one knew what the brain was made of. It's just this white, mushy stuff. So they didn't mm. even know if it was composed of cells. So for mm. a very long time, the Egyptians, for example, thought the brain just produced a snot. So when they mummified someone in Egyptian times, they used to get a hook up the nose and hook the brain out the nose and chuck it away. It was completely disregarded. Even the heart, the lungs, the intestines were all put in a jar and you know, beside wow. the, the mummified body, the brain was just cast out. Hmm. And for a long time, the brain wasn't even considered important. And then it was sort of, its importance was sort of slowly increased. But um, uh, Cajal, C-A-J-A-L, is a Spanish guy who's really the first guy in the late 1800s to be able to do a special stain on the brain and look at it under a microscope and show that the brain is composed of cells. And that was just earth shattering because it was just this white, mushy stuff. And, no, and just look at it under a microscope, just white, mushy stuff with some weird stuff in it, and no one could tell what the hell it was. And he perfected this uh, stain, and um, and he got a Nobel Prize for it, and so he wow. should have done. Wow. But uh, he he was really the first one to say this is, you know, this is this is and all these different types of brain cells, and he was able to draw them and um, and, and publish them, and it's it's like a story in itself. It's, I just finished his biography. It's phenomenal. It's like. One of the, the greatest books I've read probably in the last 12 months, this guy, this Spanish guy from from, from, a, from, a, from a very poor background mm. and rose to eminence in Spain. It's just, um, just incredible. But that was persistent. So back to this thing. You know, he was curious about something and just kept persisting at it. Yeah. I mean, even Einstein said the same thing. He said, I'm not smart. I'm just curious. And I stick at something for 10 years, you know. Mm. And... Yeah. Um, that's, that's... I think people people lose sight of how recent that history is. I mean, the the fact that this this stuff's happening only 140, 150 years ago, and you know, I suppose to to a lot of people, 150 years is a is a long time. But we know that in our human evolution, it's it's nothing. When when you extrapolate forward 150 years. So if we go back to, say, the 
the hand washing, the great hand washing discovery and the sepsis. Uh, okay, first of all, I'd like I'd like you just to, you'd, obviously you'd, you're not going to be held to this. It's just a fun little guessing game based on your your knowledge and experience. How much longer will humans be performing the physical surgery? Ah, so the robot, you mean? Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't mean when are the robots going to come and take us over. I mean, because uh, at the moment, obviously, a lot of surgery is assisted. Uh, well, it's all assisted with technology. But in, in your field, you're very hands-on. Uh, there are some surgeries that I'm guessing the, the surgeon isn't even present for the surgery, uh, not necessarily yeah, on the brain. It's really impressive, uh, the research you've done for this. Yeah, that's it's exactly not right. research, it's just oh. kind of general curiosity, I suppose. Okay, well, you, yeah. you're spot on. So there, there is, the prostate is the big one. So they've invented a robot to do prostate surgery, and that was massive because... Um, prior to, I think, in 1960, they didn't even know where the nerves were in the prostate for um, bladder and erectile function. Right? right. So they used to take out a prostate for prostate cancer. They just reef out those nerves with it, and these oh. uh, these men, you know, their bladder function's gone and their erectile function's gone. Mm. And then someone decided, right, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to work out this nerves. What's the anatomy of these nerves? And they did that. They published it. Um, and then they got better at nerve-sparing surgery to remove the prostate. And then they came up with this robot called the Da Vinci. Oh, there's others, but one of them is called the Da Vinci robot. Mm. And that was phenomenal because it could get down in a tight space. It got seven degrees of uh, motion of freedom, not six, but actually seven. Um, and uh, they were able to remove these prostates with the robot with very, very good results. Mm. And then the question became, well, can we use a robot for other stuff? And uh, we've tried in neurosurgery. And our robot's pathetic. So the urologists with their prostate surgery, their robot looks like a freaking robot, looks like a freaking spider with arms coming yeah, in everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They almost want to talk to it. And they're, you're absolutely right. They're in, a, they're in a separate room with the controls and they're doing it. Mm. And it's fabulous. But for, for, for neurosurgery, no, it's always been two hands, you know, binocular vision, bimanual operation. Mm. And the, the I think the big reason is that... Um, there's no natural space in the brain or the spine. So in the abdomen, you can blow the abdomen up and there's a space. So you can, you know, stuff can move, like robotic hands can move around. But in the spine, right. in the brain, there's no natural space. Right. So it makes it makes it slightly difficult. But we do have a robot for spine. Mm. But it's pathetic. It's like a little hydraulic arm that sits on the side of the bed. And you can just place a, a screw for putting a screw in the spine through it. It's really pathetic. The robot I want is the one where <laughs> I'm at Noosa on the beach and my robot's like doing the operation, done. And then he goes off and then he goes and parks himself in the corner and charges himself up for the next operation. That's the robot I want. <laughs> we I, don't I, have that. I was just thinking, imagine if the guy that invented that incredible robot that puts a screw in a spine was listening to that this podcast and you're like, ah, oh, it's, it's pathetic. It's just... <laughs> oh, really I want to be on the beach it. in Noosa. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually really cynical about it because, you know, the problem with this... It's law of diminishing returns. So much money is spent on the robot for the spine. And now if this hospital has a robot, but that one doesn't, then that hospital is at a, at a commercial disadvantage because they can't advertise the fact they have a robot. And patients won't know whether the uh, robot actually means it's good or not good. It's, right. it's a gimmick. It really is. Like there's, this, there's, a, there's a curve, right? You know, there's a, there was money spent and there was a big inflection on the curve. Yeah, money spent, huge benefit to the patient. 
and then it gets to the top part of the curve where it flattens out. Huge amount of money spent, you know, tiny incremental benefit to the patient. So and that's mm. where we are with the robot. Until right. we get the actual one that can do the whole operation without me being there. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> in 50 years' time, are you going to be... Assuming your hands worked and everything, are humans going to be doing the operation, do you think? I won't be doing the operation, mate, because I will and truly be retired on Noosa Beach by then in 50 years' yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You'll be on stage at Wembley That's right. playing drums. Um, uh, well, is it possible? If I think about the technology... Uh, the, 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 the father of modern neurosurgery, 1920s. Microscope, 1960s. Endoscope, 1990s. Endovascular treatment of aneurysms, phenomenal. Early 2000s. So, wow. yeah, the technology is very, very recent. And yeah. you know, now a junior registrar in neurosurgery can get a better outcome than the master, you know, father of neurosurgery back in 1920. Mm. Yeah, with all his experience. So it wouldn't surprise me. 50 years mm. is a long time for technology from a technology yeah. point of view. Yeah, it really is. Um, it's a bit of a silly question, but I'm just really curious. When you're, when you're at a party and someone says, what do you do? How do people react when they hear what you do? Michael, I don't tell them because I don't know how to say it, right? Because it's just sort of so socially awkward, isn't it? So I say I work in health. <laughs> and, then I ask, and then I ask them what they do. And then I divert uh, the, the conversation and it's all done. <laughs> that's un- so, so what you're trying to tell me is you've never been at a party where you've said, I work in, in health and the person, you've never had a situation said, where they've said, oh, in what area of health do you work? What, yeah, what's that, it I- like... Yeah, I've got a fallback. I say, oh, I'm just in the medic. I'm, ju- I'm just medical. And so, what do you do? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So you just don't. It doesn't come up in what I mean. What happens when you first tell people this is what you do? And I know I understand there's probably modesty there, and there's a whole bunch of things going going on. Um, I imagine that everyone must have this holy fucking shit kind of reaction. Um, is that accurate? No, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not accurate. I mean, what you say? What, what if I ask you what you do? What What do you say? I I I, I try and milk it for as much as I can. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, no, no. I, I just I just say I'm a musician, and and if they ask further, I'll I'll say I'm a music producer, and but generally that leads to follow-up questions you know oh what do you play what do you do what kind of music it's something that we all kind of have yeah. a shared shared love of um yeah. i don't know what's difficult know, I, about it like the, it can, like an uber driver is a classic one what do you do oh, i'm medical oh what sort of medical oh, i'm in the surgical space oh what sort of surgeon are you oh, i do neuro neuro what's that oh it's brain and spine bloody hell mate that's incredible and that's usually the standard conversation it's like well, what do you say right. like you know Right. I do neurosurgery, but for me, it's not like that big of a deal at all. It's just like everyday life. And huh. um, so I don't actually really like talking about it. So I actually find other people more interesting. <laughs> yeah. I find well, what you do more interesting. <laughs> well, I, 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 can, I can definitely tell you that uh, 
Oh, sorry, talking. you don't do anything interesting. You just play the key, the keyboard. That's right. You don't actually playing the keyboard in uh, producing. Yeah. You don't actually do anything uh, at all. No, so, no, I, know, I don't do anything. That's I just don't do anything definition of being irrelevant, isn't it? Just playing the keyboard in the band, isn't it? Uh, well, I mean, look, I, I, it, it was in that case, and I know what you're referring to. Um, I kind of look at it as um, being a musician and and creating music is performing something. I think that's important just on a, even just on a cosmic level. And I, you know, I, I don't mean to get too far out there, but uh, I just think it, it, there's enough shit that's being put out into the world by people that the more people that are putting beauty back in, the, the better. Um, I honestly, I mean, the cliche is, oh, well, it's not brain surgery. So you literally have the occupation that is the cliched smartest possible job to have is other than the humility, is there a part of you that just doesn't that you don't want to I don't I don't know. I'm just I'm fascinated by the fact that you don't tell people that you're a fucking neurosurgeon and that you and it makes you awkward. I think that's probably more a reflection of me than the career. Like it is a fascinating career, but of course, it's um, it's, uh, it's like a, what do you say? It's, I think it's because it's so it's so it's it's like the good part of neurosurgery is it's it's, it's nuanced. Like it's hard to describe what it's like to appreciate anatomy and to be in the zone during an operation. Like that's that for me is a, is a feeling. Like it's very hard to put that into words. Um, and it's it's mm. it's it's a little bit of a strange concept, I suppose, as well. And and then there is obviously the the stigma associated with it. Mm. Um, but, Interesting uh, that you see it as a stigma. Stereotype. Yeah, yeah. Do you prefer talking to a, a, a lay person such as myself who is asking? pretty basic questions or do you prefer talking to other experts in the field and really getting into the nitty-gritty and sharing your information with each other and exchanging ideas colleagues is fun because there's obviously that just that uh, innate understanding there but i much prefer this so when you're asking me about the spit in the brain that 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 for me is the ideal conversation i love that because that gets that allows me to sort of tap into what i love about it and hearing someone else being inquisitive about a part of the brain is that's a conversation i'll very very happily have wow tell me about that's... the left and the right part of the brain you know tell me about the is it actually split yeah. in half you know tell me yeah. tell me about the balance part of the brain like yeah the conversations with lay people interested lay people like you're a, yeah. you're a, you're a, you're you're above well you're a very very interesting lay person to speak to about the brain so <laughs> this makes it very interesting well thank you <laughs> yeah it's um it's it's from the from the moment that I knew and we have a mutual friend, the beautiful David Richards, and and he's spoken so highly of you over over the years, and and he's always said you guys have had that you have to meet each other, you you'll get on really well. But from the moment he told me about you, I just I was absolutely fascinated to ask all these questions. Uh, and I, I think what you're doing is just extraordinary. Do you ever pinch yourself? Uh, no, I don't. Um, 
I forget how uh, lucky and privileged I am. Um, it was more. It was more uh, evident when I was trying to pass the milestones. When I tried to get into medical school, and I did. That was a wow. When mm. I tried to get into neurosurgical training program, and there was, you know, 160 people, and six of us get on, and I get on. That's like wow, you know. And then I pass the exam on the first attempt, and it goes well, and I'm suddenly I'm qualified. And like wow. Mm. So like those milestones are really like, you know, I pinch myself and go, this is fabulous. And, but now that obviously it's just a normal day experience, but occasionally an operation comes along where it's like, you know, it reminds me, this is pretty, like I had recently had a lady with, um, a spinal tumor. She had a, one on either side, right and left. And mm. doing that operation was, you know, this is, this is good. This is what I enjoy doing. This is fa mm. I'm really, really appreciative of the position I'm in right now to do this. But there's a lot of um, there's a lot of mundane stuff. There's a lot of mm. what would be the equivalent of your editing, I suppose. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. yeah. In, but, in those um, moments, in those moments when you've got her and she's got the the two tumors, can you can you allow yourself to feel the responsibility of the moment, or or that's got to be shut out, and you've just got to be laser focused laser focus, but it's almost impossible not to feel feel it. So mm. it was very different as a registrar when I was training because somebody else carried the ultimate responsibility, like the buck stopped with them. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, as a registrar, you're much more confident than perhaps you should be. But when you become a consultant, you are the end of the line, the buck stops with you. Mm. Then you are laser focused on what you're doing, but you also feel the weight of, if something goes wrong here, I'm the one who has to deal with it. Mm. And so in this spinal tumor, it was, you know, it was really suits my aptitude. It was microsurgical, it was anatomy. It was, you know, it was technically difficult and I loved that. But I'm looking at the spinal cord right there going, if I injure that, that's big problems. And, you know, I'll have to live with the fact that she's got a spinal cord injury. Um, and so how, I feel How close that, are you to the spinal cord at that point? I'm on it. I've got a patty on it. You know, I'm, I'm literally sitting on top of it. My, but into, my, uh, so if if you're are you cut you're cutting the tumor with yeah the tumor is a, a is, physical is not, knife or yeah it's a physical knife yep the tumor right. is not lasers and excuse my ignorance <laughs> yeah we got blue light lasers and other sort of you know star wars lightsabers no, <laughs> no that's, that's all a, it's i'm a, hoping for yeah i know i'm gonna disappoint <laughs> you but it's a it's a it's a black well there is actually one we got something called a cuser mm -hmm. so it stands for uh, Cavitron ultrasonic aspirator, and it's brilliant. So I would have guessed that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it takes a long time to set up. So the other thing is can't use straight away. That's what the surgeon thinks it stands for because <laughs> nice. they have 15 minutes to set it up. But it's this tiny little tip, and it atomizes the tissue, the, uh, the tumor, and then sucks it. So you literally just put it on the tumor, and the tip of it breaks down the tissue and then sucks the tissue. So it fragments it. Wow. So it's a beautiful way of, of very delicately you know, you know, hoovering up tumor. So I do yeah. a lot of that. So get a knife, open up. I do call it the witch's cauldron. So open up the capsule, gut out the center of the tumor, and then there is what looks like a cauldron. Then collapse that down on itself. So it's a really small bundle, and then out it comes. Wow, wow. How uh, how far from kind of working out how to get rid of tumors before they start are we? Well, that would come down to screening. So that's really difficult. There are good screening, like the bowel cancer screening is incredible. Prostate screening, 
Again, fabulous. That catches mm. stuff early. Catch it early. You can do something about it. Mm. But the problem with screening in public health is you'll get a lot of um, false positives or you'll get a lot of results that you have to deal with, so incidental findings. So if I was to do a brain scan on everybody every year, you know, someone will have a bump on an artery, which normally right. would mean nothing, but all of a sudden they've got a bump on the artery, right, and they're going to be terrified about this bump on the artery. Yeah. Or there's a little white spot in their brain, which, you know, I wouldn't even think twice about, but suddenly the patient's got a white spot on their brain, you know. They've right. got cancer, but got the... So got, this is the problem with the public health campaigns is, yes, you're looking for something. If you find it, fantastic, but, you know, what are you going to do with all the other things you find as well? Mm. Like, and how do you manage mm. that? And what yeah, do they mean? Yeah. And do they need to be followed up? So, interesting, um, right? So, you know, a blood test for brain cancer, yeah, that would be fantastic. But at the moment, you know, it's 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 the old-fashioned way. It happens, it occurs, and then people get symptoms or a headache, and then they mm. present. So, it would mm. be. I mean, it'd be great because if you catch it early, you could probably do a better job. But uh, mm. I think that's a long way off. Hmm. Yeah. How? How much? Uh, how much does your job and your knowledge of the brain, does that give you any insight whatsoever into mental health? No. Well, sort of, but not really. So mental health has been looked at with functional MRI. Uh, you know, where is the depression part of the brain? You know, what's going on in psychosis? Um, a, and I'll be honest here, I find psychiatry, I don't find psychiatry very very interesting. So, you know, depression, anxiety, you know, schizophrenia, they're, they're not things I'm primarily interested in. So, mm. um, when I think about the brain, I think about structure really, and then trying to work right. out how bloody consciousness works <laughs> that's yeah. interesting yeah but it's certainly been looked at it's uh, there's a thought that we could use deep brain stimulation for psychiatric disorder for example we can use deep brain stimulation for something like parkinson's disease so people can have really bad tremor from parkinson's or be affected as tiny probe goes into a millimeter perfect spot in the brain and we know where that is and we mm. stimulate it or destroy it and the tremor disappears and their quality of life significantly improves so if someone is depressed or is schizophrenic, is there a similar spot in the brain we could stimulate and that would significantly improve it? Not cure it, but improve mm. their quality of life. Mm. I mean, there was the horror frontal lobotomy. Was it lobotomy? It was, it was basically they, they destroyed the frontal lobes in people with, with um, mental health disorders. So destroying the yeah. frontal lobes basically just turns them into a zombie. So they go yeah. from being stark raving mad to being yeah. completely placid. Yeah. And that was considered a cure. Yeah. But um, and when was that? Like we're talking sixties, right? I mean, we're not talking a hundred years ago. We're talking pretty recent history. Correct. Yeah. Seventies. Can't remember the exact decade, but yeah, it's certainly within living memory. Horrific. Mm. Horrific. Mm. Mm. And but so, yeah, I, so I suppose. I mean, God, you've only got you've only got so much brain power, and 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 focusing on mental health. It's just a conversation that I think has become normalized, thank God. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, we all have our various states of 
mental health. Um, and there are so many different factors that contribute to our mental health state. Um, I was just wondering, you know, what the correlation is physically and, and but that's, that's okay. That's cool. It's a, it's hugely important. Yeah. I think it's, fa- um, yeah. it's great that it has been normalized. It's now in the public consciousness. Yeah. It talks about just, you know, mental health, just, you know, depression, anxiety. Um, um, but in terms of, you know, mm. how, what's going on? I, 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 I'm not the man to, to ask. Are there a lot of people doing research into that? Whether there's a, a physical way of fixing these depression, for example, and, and anxiety? Yeah, I don't know. I, I know that it was looked at in the DBS, so the deep brain stimulation literature. They, it was, I looked at everything, you know, from Parkinson's to high blood pressure to you know, thought and mood disorders. Absolutely. Um, addiction. Was another big mm. one they're looking yeah. at. Yeah, imagine being able to solve addiction with deep brain stimulation. You know, yeah, someone that's... smoking gone or alcohol, you know, whatever it might be. So there is, it is, it is an active area of research because it is, well, to say the obvious, it's obviously huge commercial interest in in finding this magical part of the brain. But uh, mm. yeah, there are definitely people looking at it. I know, I know quite well the guy in Perth is looking at deep brain stimulation for a number of movement disorders. Um, and um, but there are similar people around the world doing it for for you know for psychiatric conditions. Absolutely, I just don't know very much about it. How many people are there in in your space around the world? Are, there, are we talking thousands or hundreds? There's, I think, there's two hundred in Australia. Okay. Um, yeah, there's six and a half thousand surgeons in total in Australia. I think about two hundred of those are. And neurosurgeons. I have to check those numbers. Right. I'm not sure about that. Do you, is there like a is there a bit of a kind of uh, a camaraderie between the, the neurosurgeons, oh, or is there or is there is oh. there a, a rivalry? <laughs> well, this is the, this. So if you're not, if you're not operating in the same territory, all get along beautifully. But if we're all right. uh, you know, if we're in the same geographical territory, then it becomes a little bit. I feel like surgery is self-selecting for certain personalities. That's just the reality. So, right. Um, the worst bit is, <laughs> the worst bit is when a patient goes for a second opinion. So they'll see you, and then they'll go and see someone else for a second opinion. Right. That is where the true colours come out. Oh, such mm. and such. They don't know what they're talking about. I I know what's the best thing. This is what we should. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. those stories are interesting. Like. Uh, some of the worst behavior I saw was was one surgeon talking badly about another surgeon behind their back. And I witnessed that and I thought, that looks bad. I just don't like that. It looks really, really bad. Right. And so I've made a huge effort when I get someone for a second opinion to uh, have, you know, obviously full respect for the other person's made the opinion and just to not be a dick about it, basically. Mm. But it's incredibly easy to fall into that trap of, of doing that, you know, particularly if you don't agree with the, the other opinion that the patient's had. To yeah. remain professional and objective, but yeah. well, man, there's some there's some <laughs> there's some guys out there who are quite happy to uh, <laughs> express their opinions. <laughs> right. Well, we're see, civil. That, Put it that way. We're civil. You know how you were talking before about uh, how you know being a musician must be like a dream. One Go on. Is, the... is it? Is it? Is it not? Not? Are you? 
Do you do you what? hate each other? No, no, oh, no, 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 no. Okay. The, 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 the second opinion, quite often, as a as a music producer, is my artist will be working on a song, and one day they'll come in and say, "Ah, oh, I played it to my." mum and she said the vocals aren't loud enough <laughs> that's the second the second opinions that i have to deal with are friends and family that know nothing about making records but the difference is they do know about music because we all know yeah at the end of the day music is something that affects you in whatever way it affects you and I'm not right because I like Radiohead over, you know, a, 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 some other band that I can't like Muse, for example. Sorry, I, I, I hate to bring it up. And I, I've learned not to bring the, the, the M word up. But I'm not right. It's just, you know, we, so getting those second opinions in music... It's frustrating as fuck when it's like my mum thinks that my, my voice should be louder... But that's not something you're going to have to deal with. Oh, my sister reckons you you shouldn't use the functional MRI because that's you know bullshit machine. Well, my got, sister, my sister Google, really right? likes this the robot. Bad. Yeah. Well, yeah. You, uh, so, do you have to deal with that with people who've Googled it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I actually oh. encourage it. I say, good for you. It's all about getting their attention back to where it should be, right? So, right. I'm really pleased you looked it up because you're being proactive. That's really, really... And I, I mean that. They're being proactive about the health. Your health's your number one asset. You've got to be yeah. proactive about it. Um, and then I sort of go to sort of just to sort of reorientate them and just sort of reassert the hierarchy. So I'll talk about the scan and I'll show them I know what the scan looks like. But I also take great lengths to have them understand the scan because I feel if they nice. understand what I'm talking about rather than just taking my word for it, yeah. Then they're on my side. Well, not on my side, but you know they understand. They understand my opinion, or my opinion becomes more than just words; it becomes a feeling. So mm. I, I show them the scan and get better and better at describing to them in simple words, you know, in just short phrases, so they can understand. It. So they look at the scan and go, "Oh, okay, yeah, okay." So I actually see what you're talking about there. Mm. Mm. And then I explain the solution or the treatment um, treatment um, um, options in really simple terms or really mechanical terms. So again, they go, oh, okay, so I see that's the problem and it makes sense that that's how you solve the problem. And that's mm. the point I'm aiming for. Mm. Uh, and look, if they don't use me at the end of the day, at least they've got you know the cards are on the table and they understand they can make an informed decision. But usually I find if they can understand what I'm saying, not just hear what I'm saying, mm. then usually they're pretty happy with that and the other sort of outside opinions tend to, to, to uh, dissolve. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Mm. Well, I I reckon from now on, when you meet someone and they say what you do, what do you do? Say you're a drummer, and see what happens then. Because I, I like that, but yeah. the problem is though, Michael. See, I wanted to be a drummer, a professional drummer. That was my number one thing in life. I wanted to be a professional drummer, and I didn't become a professional drummer because I wasn't good enough. Hmm. And that still hurts me. <laughs> It's right. So right? if I'm going to pretend to be the thing that I wanted to be, I feel like I will. I... Right. Okay. It's like rubbing a little bit of salt into your yeah, own wound. I just, I'm just like a kid still just, you know, dreaming about this fantasy of being a pro drummer. So is, is, is there any regret there whatsoever? 
It's yeah. The 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 regret is that it's unexplored. I think that's the that's the big thing. Like I think exploring stuff is great because then you either know that something was going to work out or it wasn't. And because it's unexplored territory, like I know that I wasn't going to be good enough because there were people in my town who were at the conservatorium and I watched them play and they're like, you know, they just had something that I didn't have, whether it was speed or just a better innate sense of, you know, rhythm or whatever it might be. Mm. Um, but I could be the woodchopper, you know, I just keep the real good groove going in some yeah, sort of uh, country thing, you know, like I, and I felt like I was I, creative and I, it's, it is, it's like, always felt from a kid like I'm the classic story you know I get my kid at seven my dad plays the piano we live where mm. there's no one else you know like and then I you know I join a band and then I go on you know be the drummer for you know Jay-Z or you know be yeah. the Oasis drummer or yeah play for Keith Urban or something like you know it, it should have happened right <laughs> well yeah but uh, I mean I, I talk to a lot of people who say oh I wish I'd I wish I'd you know kept up my music or I wish I'd tried music as a career. And I always say to them, that's all fine, but you have no idea where that journey would have taken you. You might have been dead within six months from a fucking overdose and you've never taken drugs in your life, but had you gone down that path, you know, yeah. people just romanticize the musical career so much. Yeah, I've done that. I've absolutely yeah. romanticized. That's, exa that's exactly the right word. Um, but now well, I can be that, a musician for the fun of it. Like, I can just play for yeah. fun. Um, but, God, it's good. I think it's probably being on stage. I think that's mm. interesting to hear what you say because you've gone down the producer pathway. But yeah. there's something about being on stage. There is just – that is just on a different dimension. There's something Look, magic it, about that. I 100% agree. Although I would choose the studio over, this, over playing live personally. Uh, and I, I think one of the that. reasons for that is that, um, oh, I think I've lost you. Have I lost you? No, you're back. You're back. Ah, nice. Um, I don't understand I, I why you say that. Like, uh, well, I've probably done 4,000 cover gigs in my life and probably 3,800 of them I hated. Oh man. Okay. That, that actually makes me sad. Uh, no, look, okay. I, it's like you're doing something I don't you love, mean that. but you're doing it in a place that you know that you don't love. That that is no. Look, that's not fair. That I, I, I shouldn't put it that way. That's not fair to what I do. Uh, let me put it another way. In the studio, I never feel uh, anything other than uh, creative freedom and and the ability to explore these creative concepts and musical concepts and i feel like the artists always really excited and, and we get excited about making music together and then you know i play live and i put my heart and soul into every performance of every song and at the end of the song you finish it and when no one claps in a room that breaks my fucking heart every time that's breaks brutal. my heart. Yeah. That, that, is, that is just you got, having a breakup every song, isn't it? Uh, totally. I've, I've got a, a great friend of mine who's a great guitarist uh, and singer and, and artist, a guy, Dan Romeo. And he says, oh, man, when I do those covers gigs, I just look at it as a paid rehearsal. And, and you know, I just 
look inwards and I just play and I have a good time just playing music for myself if no one's listening. Uh, and I really admire that and am envious of that because for me, it's a dagger every single time. I, I, and that's just the reality for me. And I don't get those feelings in the studio very often. Every now and then an idea might get rejected or, uh, you know, and that's, that's fine because that's part of that creative process. But I look at playing gigs, I look at part of that process being you perform and the audience react. And when you get nothing back from the audience, it just kills me every time. What about an originals gig? Uh, I, I enjoy originals gigs in, in general uh, if I'm playing for other artists. Um, if it's my own music uh, or my bands. Look, yeah, my band back in the day, uh, you know, we were in our 20s and it was us against the world. Used to, used to love it then. Um, and playing original music's great. It, it's much better. It's just, you know, I've had, I had this guy came up to me once. He was, this high school reunion was on at the Kirribilli Hotel where, where I play regularly. And these guys came in like three quarters of the way through my gig. And there's like four or five different rooms in the venue. And they all come into the room where I was. This guy comes up and says, mate, we're trying to have a conversation. Can you turn down? And... I, I just looked at him. I just looked at him and I just went, no. And kept playing, right? And as he, walked, as he walked away, I went, hey, mate. And he turned around and went, I'm trying to do a gig here. See all the other rooms in the venue where there isn't live music, where you won't have to ask, tell the musician to turn down. Go to one of those rooms. I just... That shit pisses me off, but, you know, whatever. I, I listened to a, a, a podcast that you were a guest on last night, and it was, it was fabulous. You speak a lot about luck, and I love that because uh, I'm a big believer in the role of luck. And uh, so many people say, no, 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 you create your own luck, and there's no such thing as luck. Uh, and it's generally people that have succeeded that say, yeah, you just work hard and that's all you've got to do. Now, you're someone who has worked very, very hard to get where you are and have, you know, by any measure, you've, you've had a successful career. Uh, what's your opinion on the role that luck plays in life? Michael, I think about this a lot. I am fascinated and really interested in the role of luck mm. in terms of an outcome. Me too. And, and I have some thoughts about it personally, but just more generally, quickly first, I read about it. And there's a fantastic book called The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel, uh, another brilliant book. I recommend it to everybody. But he, okay. try, he talks about luck because there's successful people like Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, these people that have scaled to the top of the mountain. And the big question is how much of it was down to luck and how much of it was down to being a genius and how much of it was down to the grind. Mm. Um, and he talks about a conversation also that he had with another economist, a very, very famous economist. 
and he said to these economists, you, like, you know a lot about the economy. What's the one thing that you don't know that you would really like the answer to? Mm. And this famous economist said, he says, Morgan, what I would like to know is what the percentage contribution luck is to an outcome. Mm. That's what I want Me to know. Me too. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just find it really interesting to read about luck. Part of me feels like I'm trying to make an excuse for not being somewhere that I want to be. Like I can just blame it on I was unlucky. So I think there's there's that. Is that to back to well. the drumming thing? Uh, if I got really lucky, maybe something could have happened. You know, but uh, but when you say you 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 didn't get to the place where you wanted to be, is that what you meant? I think it would have taken luck on top of what I did to make something out of it. Um, yeah. I don't think there was any bad luck involved. But the luck for me is that, for example, like when I got into medical school, which was number one thing I had to do to become a neurosurgeon, I got in because the dean of the medical school happened to run into my anatomy tutor and my anatomy tutor told him how brilliant I'd been in the anatomy tutorials. Wow. And so the dean rang me up and says, oh, look, you know, we're going to give you a spot. For me, that's just freaking lucky, right? A, yeah, ran into B in is. the corridor and, and even mentioned my name. And it then is. I, you know, talk about getting into neurosurgery. Well, you know, one of six out of 100 and I can't remember, it was 120 or 100 and whatever it was, people like, yes, I can, you know, tick a CV and, and do well in an interview. But, you know, there is a lot of variables there that are outside my control. And to be told, okay, Alex, you're one of the six that's going to get in. I feel like there's luck because I see lots of people who don't get in and they don't get in the second year and they've got lots of research up their belt and they've worked hard and they've done, you know, worked at this hospital and done well and they don't get in the third year and they don't get in the fourth year and five years down the track, they're still trying to get into neurosurgery. Mm. And I look at them and I think, well, there's actually no difference between me and you. I feel like we have the same aptitude, probably the same skill sets, done the work but I got on first go and it's three five years down the track and you're not on so I just mm. have to say like there is there are just some unaccounted variables mm. for there that's you know that they just yeah. fell my way yeah. and then I feel like there's there there's times where there's been you know I've been unlucky uh, as well mainly because I've you know not been able to account for it but to answer your question I think Luck absolutely does play. Like this whole thing, like, you know, luck is where hard work meets opportunity. Mm. Mm. Yeah, to a degree. To but a there's degree, a, there's, yeah. an, there's an out of it. Like, you know, let's yeah. take Bill Gates, for example. So Bill Gates was born in a wealthy family. He was lucky that he was born into a wealthy family. His mm. mother had a relate was new, one of the top execs in IBM, which is where Microsoft got their first go. He went to the only school in America that had a computer at the time. So the only school in America that had a computer. And he was born with a good brain. So yeah. you can't plan any yeah. of that. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, but a part of me, I don't, I, I'm really interested in luck because I just wanted to understand how lay luck works. Like, you know, mm. how it works, but also how much of it I'm actually in control of and how much, mm. you know, like... For example, here's another one, Mr. Beast on YouTube. Mr. Beast has 100 million subscribers on YouTube, right? And he started yeah. from nothing, like yeah. literally started from nothing. Yeah. And he always says, oh, my advice is this, to any young YouTuber, make 100 videos. That's my advice. And basically what he's saying is start 
and get better and better and better and better and better and better. And yeah. the better you get, then the rewards will start to come. Yeah. That's fine. Mm. Lots of people have 100 videos. Lots of people are getting better and better and better. And most of them won't ever have 100 million subscribers. That's so right. was yeah. it timing for him? Just in the right place at the right time? Just some, you know, minutiae of a variable that, you know, he's managed to to collide with that's, you know, jackpotted him into the in, into orbit. Mm. I can't define luck. I find it very, very interesting. I think I absolutely have been lucky. Mm. Um like here's another one, Lex Friedman. I don't know if you know Lex Friedman uh, podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he's one of many guys who teaches and researches AI um, at uh, MIT. And on Quora, people saying, how did Lex get famous? You know, there's heaps of people that could have, you know, done YouTube channel on, on AI and self-driving mm. cars and all that sort of stuff. And Lex actually responded to it on Quora himself. He said, Look, I hear you. There are lots of great people. I just think that I've been lucky. I love that. So, look, to me, that comes down to I, when I when I was thinking about talking to you. In my head, you were going to demystify the entire universe, and one thing I, I've I've loved about this chat is that it's just as much of a mystery for you as it is for me and and the mystery and and that and the mystery is what punched you in the back of the head during that surgery during the operation yeah it, it, the 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 mystery of where a song comes from where a, a lyric or a poem or where creativity comes from the mystery of luck the mystery i mean just the dumb luck that we happen to be born now you know let alone i mean the one thing i think thank god i wasn't around 200 years ago is dentistry i cannot imagine having an infected tooth before modern dentistry so i think it's a great place to say thank you so much for everything because ultimately we're in this beautiful, beautiful, terrifying, mysterious universe that has allowed us to sit here and, and chat with each other using this incredible technology. Um, and I think the fact that you, you know, one of the, you know, one of the questions I had for you and yeah. it was, look, it was, it wasn't facetious, but it was a question was um what is love and i i i wondered whether you had a neurological well we have we have seen you know it just seems like the mystery is just as 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 wonderful and and beautiful for you as it is for little old me it absolutely is and uh and i enjoy the mystery because trying to chase that uh, rabbit down the hole is one of the most enjoyable things I do. So, you know, chasing the lady luck, trying to understand her for me is, is, is currently the most enjoyable thing I do. Mm. You know, reading about you know, 
the right and left side of the brain and trying to you know get a grip on what the latest thinking about that that for me is a very very enjoyable process mm. i'm very very mm. curious and i probably won't get any answers and i'm happy not to get the answers because i almost feel like the process of trying to work it out is the bit that's actually enjoyable it's like you know getting to the end of the gig is not what it's about it's the actual gig itself you know it's actually yeah. it's the actual doing it and i feel like from the chasing curiosity on different channels is is, is is what I really really enjoy, but it's it's been fab talking to you because your uh, your curiosity is 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 right there, and you're you're interested and curious about exactly the same things. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, I was kind of thinking you were going to give me the answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, we both let each other down simultaneously, and also, strangely enough, given each other a bit of comfort. Yeah, <laughs> um, and. And uh, that's that's beautiful and humbling for me. Um, Alex, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. It's been it's been a treat. It's been an eye opener. It's been very entertaining for me. Hopefully, it's been entertaining for people listening and watching. And uh, let's do this again. Do you ever drink? By the way, I do, but I'm a very light drinker. I. Uh, You'd have to be, right? An alcoholic ginger beer for me is perfect. <laughs> okay, well, one day you can come come down to Foster, have a have an alcoholic ginger beer, and I'll have <laughs> ten of them, and uh, we'll solve the world problem. We'll do it, mate. I've found my uh, partner in crime for working this shit out. This is going to be great. <laughs> I'd love that. I'd love that. Yeah. Thanks, mate. Michael, mate. It's been brilliant, mate. I've really enjoyed it. That's great questions, great insight, great research. Thank you for all that. I really, really appreciate it. Right back at you, my friend. Thank you so much. See you, mate.